Hello, my name is Kevin Shields and welcome to the Cracked Real Podcast, episode 8. This is a very special episode because I'm finally, after saying I was going to do it for so fucking long at the start of the year, I'm going to do my top 100 movies of 20... Well, no, not of 2019, of the the 2010s, of the, the 10s. So, well, the last decade. That's a much easier way to say it. Um, there's a shitload there that I, I really had to whittle down. Uh, I think I, I had it up on Letterboxd a while ago, but it was near 2,000 or so movies, or 1,800-ish movies. And that, that actually, Letterboxd is a bit annoying in that way that it would include stand-ups and stuff like that, so you could probably knock off another chunk there. So, just for the sake of easiness, let's say 1,500. Although I haven't watched 300 fucking stand-up movies, but... Um, just to make it easier. So there's about that many and I whittled it down to a hundred movies. Now, I'm not going to talk about any other shite on this. Uh, I was thinking I might do a similar what I do with the top 20, but I realised, see, I'm very self-critical and I listen back and stuff and I go, oh, I should have done this and I should have done that. And I think basically doing an hour-long episode and then just tacking on the top 20 at the end wasn't a great idea because I feel like I might have rushed the top 20 in some ways. Uh, I wasn't as well prepared with it. So, I'm going to attempt to do this a lot more preparedly, uh, for lack of a better way of explaining that. But I'm going to not review any new movies. Like There's a few movies that I have seen and that I'm planning to see um, in the next few days. So I, I'm going to have the reviews and stuff for them soon. So that, the likes of Dark Water, or Dark Waters, um, The Invisible Man, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, I'm hoping to get to see, and The True History of the Kelly Gang. As well as reviews for, well, I, I was thinking of reviewing Better Call Saul weekly, but I think it'd be better to just do that at the end. What I could say is, so far after two episodes, people who don't like that show are actually just stupid as far as I'm concerned. It's the fucking smartest show on TV, and it's ultra creative, and it's just brilliant. And I think any Breaking Bad fan is doing themselves a massive disservice by not watching it, and they're just idiots uh, who are just attached to that story. And they need to branch off on it because fucking hell, it's amazing. Um, and I'm also going to talk about Hunters, which I finished as well. As well as I Am Not Okay With This. Is that what it's called? I can't remember. This The sort of uh, spiritual sequel, for lack of a better word, to The End of the Fucking World. It's the same creators, I think it's the same comic book, same directors, all this kind of shit. I only watched the first episode so far, I'm going to watch more. But the first episode just felt like... A, almost like a remake of the the end of the fucking world just with a slight supernatural twist from what i can tell um but i'll give a full review of that when i watch it all it's only fucking two hours really so i'll, I'll get through that soon but i'm gonna review all that next week um and oh by the way the hunt finally has a release date it's out in two weeks time which is pretty cool so it wasn't long away at all i thought it was going to be a few months before we actually got it here but i'll probably end up seeing that and having a review for that too just mild news though apparently uh indiana jones 5 was going to be directed by steven spielberg but he's stepping down now and james mangold is stepping up and everything i've seen james mangold do so far has actually been very solid so i'm uh, on board there and uh, some tremendous news here harvey weinstein is found guilty so fuck him he's a dirty cunt uh i'd like if they somehow could just rejuvenate miramax and just kind of get rid of the Weinstein name I, I mean I don't know how if his brother was bad at all because uh, it's kind of shit it'd be like if one of the Coen brothers was into fucking horrible shit and it, it kind of smeared both of their names but I don't know they should re, they should re, rebrand and be like look we don't want any association with this cunt because 
whatever a dirty fucking scumbag he was, he produced some amazing movies. So it'd be nice to not have those tarnished by having his name attached. But anyway, he's guilty and uh, hopefully he has a, a terrible time, a terrible, terrible, terrible time in prison. Oh, and I was very lucky. I, I, I didn't talk about any Blu-rays or box. I, oh no, I did. I mentioned under the server like there last week, but was going around deals as usual they have some really good stuff and now and then that pops up but I couldn't fucking believe my eyes when I saw this well first of all they had Zero Dark Thirty which I wanted to have for ages I know it's on Netflix and Prime and I still haven't gotten around to watching it but I saw it for three quids I said I'll get that but next to it with the fucking slipcover was Hereditary the fucking best horror film of the decade so I was like okay I need to fucking get this Um, well when I say best you'll, you'll figure out more when I, when I when I get to that segment of this uh this episode but it's the fact i got the two of those for three quid each i just couldn't fucking believe it um so yeah i have a lot of stuff planned now for the next couple of weeks and i've been saying from the start i want to have guests and do all sorts and i I am looking to get that done as soon as possible i have a few people who i know will be immediately up for it and some other people i know who've shown interest and for different things and actually to be honest on the very first episode of this i wanted to illustrate that it was going to be quite expansive in terms of entertainment in that i would talk about video games and tv and stuff now i've talked about a bit of tv i've done fucking nothing on video games which i really want to dedicate an episode to that or like get someone in who's mad for video games or even people who've worked on video games i know a few people if they're interested um but the other thing is i think when i was giving my example of how i want to be broad i mentioned music to be honest as much as i love music i fucking adore music of several genres but I'm, I'm not very good at talking about music. Uh, I There's things in music that pops out to me. And I'm like, I like that. And I, these are the kind of bands I like and whatever else. But like when you see someone like that guy, Anthony Fantano, on YouTube, who just fucking... He just can break down song by song what's different about them, what he likes about them. Like, I can do that with movies. I can't do it with fucking music. So to talk about music is probably redundant. Unless I have some musicians on, I talk to them about music in that way. But I, I won't be able to pull off... A fucking two hour episode of me on my own talking about music. I can guarantee you that much. Um, but yeah I do want to keep this broad. But like I said. This is a special episode. I've probably introduced this long enough. But what I'm going to do is. I've whittled this down to 100 movies. I've swapped around a few things. And there's some stuff I took out of it. That I originally had in. Like for instance. I had 1917 in there. Which as I said when I saw it. It blew me away. But the more I think about it. Even though I still think it's a fucking brilliant movie. I wouldn't have it in my top 100 of the decade. But it does definitely belong in my, my top of 2019 for sure. But for the top 100, there's just so many movies and there's stuff I forget about. And I'm, like the first movie I'm actually going to mention here is one I totally forgot to include. And when it, when it clicked at me, I was like, surely that's in there. And it wasn't. Um, I also have another list I have on Letterboxd here. It's a private list as well, but it's about 40 odd underrated or uh, underappreciated movies of the 2010s as well none of which will be appearing in this list so I, i'm going to do another episode dedicated to that and i was half thinking i could do a sort of collaboration episode there so i'll, I'll talk more about that when i get to it um but what i'm doing for this is because it's tough enough to get yourself a fucking top 100 movies i mean it wasn't terribly tough because i was going through them and i know what i like but the hard part is putting them in order there's some stuff that I'm like, how the fuck do I put this ahead of that? They're so different, but I love them both equally and it's all over the place. So what I've done is I've come up with a reasonably definitive top 10. And then the other 90 are just going to be random. They're just, I, I added them to the list willy nilly when I was thinking of coming up with it. 
and that's just how I'm going to talk about them. So you can just assume that all these 100 movies are excellent. And then when I get to the top 10, they're just my favourites that I put some thought into where I'm going to keep them on the list. Um, there might, well, I don't have to be any huge surprises in there. If anyone who knows me or knows how frequently I've visited some films over and over in the cinemas, some of which I've seen three and four times in the cinema, some of I've seen about eight times in the cinema. One I saw about nine times in one month, so there's a few here that uh, I obviously liked a lot. But what I'm going to do is, because 100 movies is, quite frankly, ridiculous, I'm going to split this up into two episodes. I've mentioned doing something like this before. So I'm going to just do 50 now, and then 40 of the other random ones the next time, finishing off with the top 10. So let's fucking get going. Okay, so number 100, well, like I said, it's not quite in order, but I'm going to just do it in this strange way anyway. So number 100 is Tom Ford's Nocturnal Animals. This is a fucking really bizarre one. Um, it's, I, I remember when I saw that, I, did, I tried to avoid the trailers. I only caught bits and pieces and I thought, okay, it looks like a thriller. It has Amy Adams, Jake Gyllenhaal, uh, Aaron Taylor-Johnson, Isla Fisher... And Michael Shannon. And I thought, okay, that's everything I fucking like about movies. So this should be fucking great. Uh, or every actor that I'm fucking interested in already. Although Aaron Taylor Johnson took a while for me to warm to. Uh, he was okay in Kick-Ass. But he, I, when I saw him in Savages, I was like, fucking hell. That was one of the worst fucking movies I've seen in a long time. It was actually one of the worst of the decade. I'll say that confidently. Um, but he's brilliant in this. And it's a strange one. There's three timelines throughout it. There, well... A sort of fictional timeline and a real timeline so you have uh jake gyllenhaal and amy adams when they were younger when they were just starting to fall in love and then you have them several years later uh, or like how many years i think it's like 20 years or something like it's a good long time later as far as i remember um and it's them they haven't spoken in so long they had broken up and all this kind of stuff and he sends her a copy of his new book and says, I want you to have a look at my book and tell me what you think of it. And then you get to see what she's reading in the book. So it's acted out with Jake Gyllenhaal himself again. And it has Isla Fisher, who's kind of a stand in for Amy Adams' character. At least that's how she's perceiving it. And you're getting this really intense thriller of a book while it flashes back to the kind of good times they had as a couple. And to now her reading it and her and her new career and everything that's going on with her. So these three different timelines that are all going on at once. And I just remember being completely hypnotised by this movie. The start of it though, I know <laughs> I saw two people walk out at the start and it caught me off guard too. Because it's supposed to be at this art exhibition. Actually this is interesting as well. Tom Ford I think is like a fashion designer or something like that. And he did that movie A Single Man a few years ago. And then he did this and it's kind of it's a strange career jump to have. But I remember when I saw the opening of this, it's really, I mean, really heavily obese, elderly women, completely naked, dancing in super slow motion at the camera, gyrating at the camera. And I remember just thinking to myself, I was like, am I at the fucking right movie? This feels like some really obscure attack. But <laughs> it ended up, several people got up and left, but the, the movie kind of opens at an art exhibition and that's the exhibition that's on. I was like, okay, that makes sense now. I was like, what? This has nothing to do with a fucking thriller I thought was coming. Uh, but no, this is a fucking superb movie. It's really, really intense. And there's some genuine 
almost horror elements to the movie. Not like horrors. Because horror is such a broad term. I think when you say a horror movie. I know people box horror in. And I'm not going to go on a tangent here. I know I generally do. But this is something I'll talk about again. About the different genres of horror. Subgenres. But when someone says horror. They just think supernatural. Or they think gory mad thing but they don't think of the several kinds of horror out there and this is definitely one of them this is bordering on it um at least in the book part of the movie it's like a really tense thriller but i think i don't know if he won but michael shannon was up for an oscar i think he might have been nominated it could have been was that the same year as fucking jared leto in uh what was that film called Dallas Buyers Club. It could be the same year as that, and he took it from him. I, I don't remember, but I know he was nominated. Uh, but seriously, brilliant performances from everyone in this. And Tom Ford is one. I don't know what he's done since. I must look into that. But I know as soon as I saw this, and then I saw a Single Man only a few years ago, but I know this chap is one to watch. He's fucking fantastic. So that's number 100, Nocturnal Animals. And keeping up with the theme of, well, animals in a certain way. Uh, number 99 is an Australian one actually I should probably say the year that Nocturnal Animals came out so that came out in 2016 uh, just to give an idea of maybe what films together were around the best time or, or best year of the decade although personally I think 2019 might be the strongest but we'll see um, so that was 2016 is Nocturnal Animals and number 99 is 2010's Animal Kingdom directed by David now I say Michod or Michod Michod Mikud, I don't fucking know. It's a, it's a strange uh, spelling of a name. It's M I C H and then an O with a fucking triangle over it and, <laughs> and a D. So uh, he's Australian anyway, but he's one that just, again, since seeing this movie, I thought I have to fucking watch everything he does. And he did a superb movie from a few years ago that I don't remember if I've included on this list <laughs> now that I think about it because I uh, I was quite fucking hasty putting it together in certain parts and I was kind of removing and adding stuff at the same time um, but I don't know if I included it in this maybe I didn't actually no I didn't uh, he did a movie a few years ago which was the movie to remind me that or to, to show me that Robert Pattinson is actually fantastic and it's a movie called The Rover but we're not talking about that we're talking about this and this is a very tense crime story I don't remember I don't think it's based on a real thing I think it might be based on a real family but I think it obviously it's fictionalised or, or yeah, it's, it's a not necessarily an adaptation but it could just be yeah a fictionalised version of this real family in Australia but it's set in the late 80s and you're following this young lad I think his name is James Frenchville and this chap recently was actually in that black 47 movie the the irish famine rambo movie so fambo and he was quite good in that but in this but this is the first thing i saw him in and it's just such a weird dour grim australian atmosphere to it not quite now as as grim as a uh, Snowtown, which for some reason in certain countries was called animal kingdom 2 i think just because it was two grim aussie movies back to back they just threw them together as a package deal but it follows him and he kind of starts living with his estranged family again who are just a career a group of criminals of some of the worst kind um, and you have people like Joel Edgerton who's sort of his uncle who he really looks up to and the worst of the bunch is Ben Mendelsohn who just is like a constant ready to explode level of fucking tense anger inside him and you just don't know what his motives are at all when you're watching him and 
it's just about his life and what's going on with his family and the girl that he's, he loves and a lot of things cross over but they're, they're led not just by Ben Mendelsohn but by Jackie Weaver and I'm pretty sure she got a, an Oscar nomination for this as well and that's when I knew she was excellent and that's what made the grudge that came out this year so fucking painfully disappointing with how bad she was in that but no she's superb in this and it's just about this the family and what went on with them and you've got Guy Pearce as the cop who's trying to bring them down as really interesting really tense you really don't know where, where it's going to go and um, I'm trying to think yeah that's the name of the song I only had a different song in my head there but All Out of Love by Air Supply is used in a scene and again it's there's something I like about movies where you have total opposites in tone of what's going on so you might have something really basic going on and really normal and happy but it has some really intense music over it and it just makes it so much more intense somehow if you have something scary happening with scary music it actually kind of feels not that scary but in this case you have this 80s power ballad love song over a scene that is just brimful or brimming with tension and fucking hell i remember seeing that for the first time going oh shit i don't know what's gonna happen here and there was actually a, a facebook trend a few years ago maybe five or six years ago or where it was 31 days 31 scenes kind of thing and it was sort of a criteria to the underrated movie scenes you put up and i put that one up at one stage because it just really stuck out at me um just excellent performances all around really tense but a slow burn and it's just it's just so gritty and i fucking absolutely love this movie and this is another one i actually forgot about uh while i was putting the list together and i was thinking oh why isn't that in there so thinking about the rover again i'd nearly include that but it's hard to at this stage a lot of the stuff i have in there is set in stone but that goes to show i mean the decade even though you could fucking spend weeks and weeks talking about all the great 80s movies that are out there there's so much good shit coming out in the last decade but you just don't fucking hear about it because the likes of odeon won't show these things so if you're only local to there or even most fucking mainstream cinemas won't show a lot of this stuff so it's always a big surprise when they do and by the way the fucking cheek of Odeon who have put up an advert there recently talking about Parasite saying oh it's a must see movie come see it today with their logo I'm thinking you weren't going to fucking show this movie till it won an Oscar you absolute cunts so don't act like you're these fanatical about film as they laughingly call themselves and saying oh this is a must see we're, we're the first cinema out here showing this bullshit they're a useless pack of arseholes but I'm digressing here. So number 99 is 2010's Animal Kingdom. Really fantastic movie. Not exactly a fun family movie, but it's fucking well worth seeing. At number 98, this is one that I've... I don't know how many times I've actually watched this now. Probably maybe three or four since it came out. At least... F- actually, I think four is about the right number. And it's probably going to be a fifth one soon. Because I know some friends who haven't watched it yet and I want them to watch it. And it's a 2014 movie that showed at the Horathon. Now, this is a rare case where a movie's so popular and in demand that they have to fucking open up another screening to show it. That's always a good sign. I was lucky to see it in screen one where it was just a packed house and it was side-spitting for everyone, including me. And everyone I've showed this to... I, I actually once set up a, my own cinema in a pub. And this was one of the biggest attended events i did at it and it was the place was howling and this is the the directorial duo of taika waititi who i've mentioned many times now after he he, uh, was up for jojo rabbit for best picture and won several awards uh but himself and jermaine clement of flight of the concords got together and they directed a 
mockumentary vampire movie called What We Do in the Shadows. Now this movie, again, it's one of those ones that I avoided everything about it because I just saw who was involved and I was like, okay, well, I'm getting the full pass for the horathon anyway. I'm going to see it. So this should be good crack. And I think, I'm pretty sure it was the closing movie of that year. But fucking hell, this movie is just a laugh a minute. And it's so hard to fucking do something like that and actually make it work. Because when it comes to a lot of mockumentaries, sometimes they, they go too stupid for their own good. And when when you're watching this, like a, the plot of it is a bunch of housemates who are vampires who are living in a flat in New Zealand. And it's just their day-to-day life. And like one of them is from back in like Nosferatu style era then you have the kind of modern day one you've won from maybe about I don't know 100 years ago and then one from maybe 300 years ago so they're, they're all from different eras and they all have different they've all been turned by each other at some point and it's just really fucking good you have Taika Waititi's one of the lead characters this before I even knew he directed it that's what made it so surprising you have Jermaine Clement and most important well not most importantly but one of the most important for me anyway is um, Reese Darby who he just shows up as a, a werewolf and fucking hell nearly every line out of him is solid gold it, it's one that if you were a fan of Flight of the Concords anyway you're going to absolutely adore but I think just most people who wouldn't even have been into that will find this hysterical and I know that strangely I know some people who I thought would have loved it who didn't like it um, they're very much in a minority though because everyone I know else otherwise who's seen this has loved it and it's easily one of the best comedies of the last decade possibly well one of my other choices which will be coming up soon is is definitely up there too but there's some seriously like i mentioned before i actually mentioned this on the facebook page there are some comedy movies that have come out in the last decade that are very good but there hasn't been any true classics in the same way you think back to the 80s and you've got a whole list of them even the 70s and before and sometimes 90s but there's so many great classic comedy movies that come out but in the last decade there's been some amazing stuff but I don't know maybe the meaning of classic has just changed in a certain way because some of these will be up there among some of my favourites but I don't know it's a tough one but anyway number 98 What We Do In The Shadows from 2014 absolutely fucking hilarious highly recommend it and if it's ever shown in a cinema I would go out of my way to see it because I think I, I think I don't know whether Odeon got it but Cineworld definitely got it after the Harathon and it was flying out with sales so that was obviously a good thing number 97 is a movie from 2017 and although maybe we got it in 2018 I think we got it in 2018 because I'm pretty sure it was a January release but I'm not, I'm not going to get into all that shit. I'm just going by the dates that are actually attributed to it here now like I mentioned before on my 2019 list Uncut James won't be in this one the way it wasn't in the 2019 one because I didn't see it to this year and as far as I'm concerned it's a 2020 release um had I seen it last year, absolutely it would have been up very fucking high in the last uh, in this list and the last list. So, But this one is a 2017 movie directed by half-Irishman Martin McDonough. Now, it's called Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. I think McDonough is one of the fucking finest writers out there. And to see him do something of this fucking scale was just absolutely amazing. Because he has arguably the strongest character arc i've seen in a film in nearly my whole life um well i mean you have a fucking all-star cast for a start you got francis mcdormand woody harrison sam rockwell john hawks peter dinklage abby cornish lucas hedges caleb landry jones which will make a, a, another appearance later i think if i remember correctly but he's he's a fucking rising star in my eyes he's brilliant uh samara we- weaving and 
several others, <laughs> which I'm not going to bother listening to them all because I'll be here all day. But this film is just outstanding. It was one of those ones where as I'm watching it, I was just... There's a lot of films like that where in a couple of minutes you're just completely comfortable. You're just like, okay, I'm in good hands here. This is going to be fucking excellent. And this is just top tier. And Mark McDonough, he's done brilliant within Bruges. I really like Seven Psychopaths. I think his brother needs a few fucking pointers from him though. Because I I like the guard a lot, but it's not the best. Calvary has massive problems, even though I really enjoyed lots of it. And War on Everyone was fucking terrible. But McDonough is teaming up again with... um, What's his face? Brendan Gleeson and Colin Farrell. So I'm really eager to see what he comes out with next. But Three Billboards is just fucking fantastic. Um, I didn't even explain the plot. It's basically a woman decides to go at war with the the whole town, basically. Mostly the sheriff's department for not solving the murder and rape of her daughter. And she goes to war by purchasing three massive signs, which you have to drive by when you go into that town, that pretty much call out the police department and it's uh, a ballsy move Francis McDormand's pretty much the only one who could really pull something like that off but uh, Sam Rockwell's character in this movie just has the best arc it's just so fucking well written and it's it's a testament to great writing out there if you can give a shit about this type of character because within seconds you're going to realise this guy is a steaming piece of shit but what they do with it is just fucking outstanding so three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri number 97 fully recommended Number 96, we have Matt Reeves' 2014 fucking near masterpiece as far as I'm concerned, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Now, those the, the latest Planet of the Apes trilogy has been fucking mind-blowingly good. Uh, this is the second of the three. I was half thinking of having the third one in there as well, but the more I think about this one is probably my favourite of that three. But this one, you have Andy Serkis, obviously, who's playing Caesar the, the ape, and with some of the most groundbreaking special effects that today even like after six six seven years they still blow me away like even when i saw war of the planet of the apes within seconds i had forgotten that i'm actually not watching real apes that's just how realistic this shit looks and this is the same this is just mind-blowingly good looking this is more the aftermath of a plague that has wiped out most of humanity you have a small group of survivors led by jason clark and you have the politics of the new leaders of the world who are the the apes led by as i said andy circus and you have toby kebble as his um i suppose his enemy throughout it they're sort of brothers but also enemies kind of thing not not real brothers but you know what i mean metaphorical movie brothers but just fucking incredible movie and matt reeves has really shown that he's a, a director to watch because i mean he did the first cloverfield which fucking broke new ground as well he did the last two Planet of the Ace movies and he's currently working on the new Batman movie with Robert Pattinson so this chap is one to watch but this film is just fucking mind-blowing in terms of special effects and there's action and scale and just everything they did with it is fantastic and I thoroughly thoroughly recommend it at 95 I think is uh, <laughs> I'm pretty sure I, I should have kept track of the fucking numbers here but uh, number 95 is one of two maybe three I think two Wes Anderson films that are on this list and that's 2018's Isle of Dogs and a movie he made in a similar fashion to uh, what's it called Fantastic Mr. Fox in that it was stop motion with kind of clay and uh, fabrics and all that kind of shit but still captures his wide spectrum of cinematography and colours and everything else it's just fucking fantastic but it's about a, it's a sort of futuristic a retro futuristic Japan 
it's hard to kind of describe when it is because it's kind of in the past kind of in the future and all dogs have been banished because of a, a dog flu that's going around so they're sent to this big island which is just full of trash and in, in, industrial crap and they're forced to live there and obviously all the dogs have voices so the likes of brian cranston and ed norton and bill murray and jeff goldblum and such but you also have some pretty top class japanese actors uh, or actors out there so you've got uh I don't know how I'm going to actually pronounce this name now, but, but Konichi Namura, Akira Takayama, uh, Ken Watanabe, which is a big one. And just loads of others. But, I mean, in terms of Wes Anderson, his movies will always have the top fucking actors out there. So, like I said, you've the bunch I mentioned there. We've Bob Balaban, Greta Gerwig, Francis McDormand, Fisher Stevens, Harvey Keitel, Lee Schriever, Scarlett Johansson, Tilda Swindon, obviously, uh, F. Murray Abraham, lots of people. Um... But the story follows this young boy whose dog gets sent to this island and he decides, I want my fucking dog back. So he embarks on a mission to go to the island and rescue him. And that's about as much as I'm going to say about it. But it's fucking fantastic, amazing stop motion animation. I can't remember if it was up for an Oscar for animation, but it should have been. Uh, Stop motion, as far as I'm concerned, fully qualifies for that. Uh, Although I remember Kubo and the Two Strings was fucking shunted the year before, or a few years before, so that was ridiculous. But this one... Tremendous, one of my favourites of that year, and just brilliantly enjoyable and endearing. And if you're a dog fan, obviously you're going to like it. Number 94 is Morton Tildums, I think I say you pronounce his name, uh, 2011 Scandinavian movie, Headhunters. Uh, this was actually the first, I think it was the first thing, I'm trying to remember when Game of Thrones came out, but I, I maybe I was already watching Game of Thrones at this stage, but yeah, I think it was, but N- Nikolai. Costa Waller or Nicolaj, whatever you pronounce his name, uh, is one of the leads in this, and it's a really interesting, strange, very funny, very clever and intense thriller uh, about this guy who's he, he steals paintings and makes exact replicas of them, and then he basically finds out where rich people live. He steals their paintings, makes exact replicas, swaps them out, and then he sells the real painting for profit. So the pompous rich assholes that have these paintings think, oh yeah, this is an original, blah blah, but they've actually been conned. But that, that's a guy played by Askel Hennis or Henny. Um, but he decides to make a terrible decision and go after Nikolai Kostrovalda's house for a painting. And it just leads to a big cat and mouse game where Kostrovalda wants his fucking painting back and will stop at nothing to take him down for it. So it's really, really intense, really funny. There's some parts in it that you just really don't expect and they catch you so off guard by how funny they are. But also how tense. And there's some ugly fucking violence in this movie as well. It's really surprising. But it's just absolutely brilliant. And I think... I'm trying to remember is the guy I'm thinking of who wrote it. doesn't seem to have a writer here. It does, yeah. Joe Nesbo. He's a, a big name in, in Scandinavian literature. He's fucking... everything. Every movie that's been adapted to his stuff has been good. From Although I haven't seen that fucking... What's it called? Uh, what was that one? The Snowman. I think he... he wrote the original of that but the, the fucking movie was a disaster but this absolutely fucking tremendous from 2011 number 94 headhunters number 93 is one that actually nearly made it to my top 10 um jesus still fucking might actually no it's too late now i've already started but this is uh this is the first film i saw from uh damien chazelle and it is whiplash from 2014 this film blew my fucking mind uh, it stars Miles Teller and J.K. Simmons as drummers. So Miles Teller is a new jazz drummer who's in New York, and he's going to the, he wants to go to this prestigious college where 
the teacher is J.K. Simmons, and he is just the harshest, meanest, foul mouth. He's just a total bastard of a person, but he pushes people well beyond their limits to get brilliance out of them in terms of drumming and jazz, and it's just fascinating to watch. And their whole rapport in this movie is just a, it's, a, it's pretty much based on hate, but a, a lot of mutual respect, and it's just, there's so much fucking going on. There. The editing, it won best best editing at the Oscars that year is jaw-dropping how they fucking put some of this together is beyond me it also has the fi- the final 10 minutes of this movie fucking hell are the most edge of the seat you're just silent watching it going this is incredible it's, everything about it is fucking mind-blowing and it's not the first damage Chazelle film that's going to be on this list although this this is also like i said this isn't in order of what i think is best this is just going to be 90 movies that i think are amazing and then my top 10 effectively uh, so when you see the next film, even though I prefer Whiplash to the next film that he did, just know that uh, they both deserve to be on this list. But yeah, Whiplash 2014, number 93, fucking incredible. See it as soon as you can. Number 92 was another one of my favourites from 2017, from one of the most biggest visionaries in, I suppose, horror and fantasy and everything, uh, Guillermo del Toro. And this was The Shape of Water, which I think, pretty sure that won Best Picture that year. If I remember correctly. Or at least Best Director. One of them anyway. It's hard to creep up with the fucking Oscars anymore. Because every time it's over I erase it from my head. I just know what's nominated and what probably won. But this one is very very bizarre. But it's set in the early 60s. And it follows a mute woman played by Sally Hawkins. Who works as a cleaner in this big medical research facility. And she discovers that there's a weird sort of fishman creature that they have held there that they're experimenting on, which is experiment led by Michael Stuhlbarg, who has Michael Shannon breathing down his neck as a big G-man, wrecking fucking everyone's day. Um, but she happens to see this sea creature, and they sort of fall in love. And it's about their forbidden, very strange, very Guillermo del Toro love story, and the lengths Michael Shannon will go to keep them apart. Um, you also have Richard Jenkins putting in another blistering performance he's just constantly fucking putting in great I've never seen him actually put in a shit performance even when he's doing a stupid comedy movie like Step Brothers he's fucking brilliant in it and he has some hilarious lines too Um, but this one is just so unusual and weirdly lovely but also fucked up and I mean like typical Guillermo del Toro stuff his stuff almost feels like you look at Pan's Labyrinth that's something that could have been a 12's kids movie but he, he he has that atmosphere to it but he has really fucked up content and that's what this is like too so you're in for a treat you're in for something really visually striking and interesting and has a really nostalgic look at the early 60s and that kind of era in hollywood while also being this bizarre strange horror movie you know, or fantasy more on the fantasy side there is horror elements but it's definitely more on the fantasy side but uh obviously doug jones who else could play uh, the fish creature besides him so <laughs> you're just in for something really interesting this is a fantastic movie and it's number 92 I think The Shape of Water number 91 is one that I was going to kind of do as a double bill and I didn't uh, I did mention the second film of this franchise in my top 20 or of this particular one uh, and this one here is 2018's Avengers Infinity War uh Along with Endgame, one of the most ambitious fucking things ever, with arguably one of the most heart-stopping cliffhangers in cinema history. 
maybe the biggest. Now, unfortunately, because there's so much early announcements with fucking Marvel stuff where you know there's going to be a film coming out in a few years, anything that might happen to certain characters in movies, you're like, well, they're probably okay because there's a fucking sequel coming out. But then again, other movies might surprise you because things can be prequels and whatever else, so you never know what's coming. But there's things about this I thought, hmm, I don't know how that's going to go, but what they managed to do with this is just fucking fantastic. Like, it, it, uh, nearly as ambitious as Endgame. Endgame was just another level of ambition. But this was just incredible what they managed to do. Fantastic action set pieces. Thanos is actually the best villain that any of these movies have had. Now, I, like, I, I don't even know if there's much point going through all the fucking actors that are. I mean, it's the two Russo brothers who directed it who just... Since they came in with uh, Captain America Civil War, they set a new fucking bar. But I mean... You've got everyone. You've Robert Downey Jr., Chris Hemsworth, Chris Evans, Mark Ruffalo, Scarlett Johansson, Benedict Cumberbatch, Tom Holland, Chadwick Boseman, Don Cheadle, Zoe Saldana, Karen Gillan, Elizabeth Dawson, Paul Bettany, Anthony Mackie, Sebastian Stan, Tom Hiddleston, Idris Elba, Peter Dinklage has a small part in it, Benedict Wong, Batista, Vin Diesel, or Dave Batista, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, yeah. uh, Bisa del Toro, Josh Brolin as Thanos, Chris Pratt, and Bradley Cooper. There's just, there's even more than that. Fucking Sam Jackson, I don't even think I said. There's just everyone. And to get all these characters together... See, it might even sound like that I'm almost praising Endgame more because it's so much more ambitious, but this one is just such a strong movie. And there's a lot of uh, things going on in Endgame that... Now, I I don't want to say anything because I don't want to spoil it, but this has Thanos at his best in terms of he's just the most believable brilliant villain and you get so much of it you get a real insight to what he's like why he's like this the decisions he has to make and it's just it's the best villain that any of the marvel films have had and it's one of the best movies of the whole marvel franchise uh maybe top three although see it's hard to kind of include uh iron man because that came out in what 2008 2009 so uh that will be in this list had it been the top 10 because that's just one that that started at all that fucking changed the game um but yeah, number 91, Avengers Infinity War. Incredible. And number 90, this one... See, this is the, the trouble with sometimes doing these lists. Because when I made my list for best movies of 2018, this topped it. Because when I saw it in the cinema, I was just so charmed and blown away by it. And it's such a good-natured, feel-good movie that I was like, oh, yeah, this is definitely the best movie I saw last year. But I probably... One of my later entries would probably have been my, my best film of that year. I think it was number two. Uh, although my I, my my four movies of that top 25 I did I actually wrote it on the Cracked Rail website those four movies were all interchangeable really because I just kept thinking to myself nah, nah this one should be number one then I kept swapping around and eventually this took the spot because I saw it in late December so that was about the time I started working on the list uh, and it's David Lowry's 2018 film The Old Man and the Gun now I know a lot of people who have watched this some people who I thought would love it some I thought might have liked it and None of them liked it and at all, and I found that really surprising. I think it's just one of the most charming, enjoyable, good-natured romps you can watch. And it follows... It's actually loosely based on a real guy who he was a con artist and thief, played by Robert Redford, and he was known in the real world as the friendliest... Or, like, happiest? No, I think it was, like, the friendliest thief that ever was because he just went in with a big smile on his face and he was so courteous and nice and lovely... To all the bank tellers and everyone in the bank who he was actually robbing at gunpoint. And he just made them feel at ease. And it's just so such an unusual approach to a robbery. 
but it's based on a real guy and I mean you have Robert Redford playing him you have Sissy Spacek as a a love story that's going on I think that's what made it so endearing too because these are two of the biggest actors in the 70s who are kind of together again in their old age set in a movie that's at the end of the 70s and it just has a real nostalgic feel to it it's almost like their own swan song because I think Robert Redford he might have retired after this or this could have been one of his last movies I may be wrong but it just has that atmosphere to it and you also you have the like you've John David Washington's in it as well uh Danny Glover Tom Waits and Casey Affleck as the cop who's trying to take them down and it's just I, I enjoy movies where there's a sort of respect between two enemies so you look at something like Heat where you have De Niro as the thief and Pacino as the cop but they they really have a lot of respect for each other even though when it comes down to it if needs be they'll kill each other to get out of each other's way or get past each other I should say but they still have a mutual respect and this is a similar thing here Casey Affleck clearly has a lot of respect for Robert Redford and Robert Redford likes to have a little of a piss take with him and I just think it's such an endearing movie and I absolutely adore it and David Lowry is just constantly fucking surprising me with how good he is and the uh, another one of his movies is on this list too that's all I'll say but number 90 so The Old Man and the Gun at number 90 from 2018 superb tremendously enjoyable go watch it at number 89 we have one that I mentioned in my top of 2019 and that is The Lighthouse from well 2019 although if you're from over here it's 2020 in terms of technicality whatever way you want to look at it to me it's from 2019 incredible fucking movie Robert Eggers has uh, proven so far that he's definitely one to watch like I said The Witch I didn't love it but I have a lot of respect for it and this film I absolutely loved it's Robert Pattinson Willem Dafoe are on I think it's in Boston or New England or around that area uh, on a lighthouse together pretty much stranded there going crazy that's the best way to describe this movie it's not just immediately insane when you watch it there's a slow tense build up it's full of really funny moments surprising amount of farting some really intense horror visuals the score in it is the best horror score I've heard in fucking years it's just all around fantastic and it's shot in really tight I did, it's a shot on 16mm on old lenses and it's just amazing what they did with it and it rightfully was up for best cinematography but it should have been up for so much more Willem Dafoe was robbed for a best supporting actor role and Robert Pattinson deserved to have a best actor nod as well because he's fucking superb in it so number 89 The Lighthouse and number 88 a film that is just soul crushingly depressing but amazing to watch and that's Derek Cianfrance's I think that's how you pronounce his name. That's how I've always pronounced it. A 2010 movie, Blue Valentine. You've got two heavy hitters here. You've got both Ryan Gosling and Michelle Williams who in virtually every role they've put in 110% and I will watch anything that they're in. But together here, it's it's quite similar in ways to Marriage Story in that it's an unconventional... I can't even call it a love story. Um, with Marriage Story, you're, you're solely documenting the breakdown of this marriage and the divorce whereas this is the very beginning of the relationship when it's all at its happiest and it's actually in the last few months leading up to an inevitable divorce it's it constantly switches back between 10 years of all this happening and it's just there's so many parallels of all the good times to the bad times and just how bitter and hateful everything turns out it's just it's such a depressing fucking movie but it's actually so good the music's amazing in it 
Um, I think is it Grizzly Bear who do the music? I could be wrong. I know there's a song called Foreground. <laughs> I don't know if it's Grizzly Bear or do it, but it's a impactful song that's used a lot throughout the movie. But it's just fucking incredible. Not a happy movie. It's not a love story that you're gonna fucking be skipping and hopping out of the cinema after or at home. Almost everyone I know has been on several emotional roller coasters after watching this movie, and it's no surprise. It is a tough, tough watch, but it is fantastic, and I thoroughly recommend it. It's one of those good, sad movies. That's that's. I've noticed that any kind of really hard drama are the kind I love the most because they actually evoke a real emotion. It's not just cheap, weak drama. So this is easily one of the best of the decade. And number eighty-eight, Blue Valentine. At number 87 is one that I've actually recently bought again on Blu-ray because I got a lovely um, media book version from Germany. Uh, it's 2010's, or Martin Scorsese's 2010 film, Shutter Island. Again, Michelle Williams makes an appearance here, but it's mostly dominated by Leonardo DiCaprio and Mark Ruffalo with an appearance from Ben Kingsley. You've uh, Max von Sydow, Jackie O'Haley and Emily Mortimer making appearances too. Really just intense strange bordering on horror i mean you can nearly call it a horror it's more of a mystery but it's about a soldier from world war ii who has become a u.s marshal and he's arriving on this island which has inhabits a mental asylum and he's looking for someone who has gone missing uh, a patient who's gone missing and it's just so fantastic you're, you're totally locked in you don't know what's going to happen where it's going to go there's so many strange inconsistent well maybe inconsistencies isn't the word but stuff that doesn't make sense as you're watching it i remember watching it going what the fuck's going on here and then it starts to make sense and the more you watch this movie the more little things you pick up on about sanity and where things are going and it's just it's a brilliant mix of all the classic stuff that scorsese would have watched growing up in like the between the 30s and 60s maybe of just bizarre horror movie elements visuals lots of kind of uh, hitchcockian stuff going on Really interesting, really tense, really smart, amazing visuals, and just, I mean, Scorsese's just on another fucking level. He really is, so definitely give this one a look. At 86 is what I would nearly consider to be the funniest comedy of that decade. Uh, For me, at least, a lot of people, I don't know. I know some people who weren't big fans of it. I'm surprised. I think it's absolutely side-splittingly fucking funny. And there's only a few that might be up there or near. Like I said, what we do in the shadows would be one of them. Um, but for a decade that's so sparse with fucking brilliant comedies, this one really stood out. And it's Jorma Tacon. I think I how you pronounce his name. Again, some of these names are just bizarre. and they, You know fucking directors, they have odd names. But he's one of the guys from Lonely Island, which Andy Samberg is a big part of, or a creator in. And it's 2010's MacGruber. This movie... I had never watched any of the, the Saturday Night Live sketches, so I was a bit out of the loop in that sense. I didn't know what the character was like. I just went into this being told, this is better than you were going to expect. So I said, okay, I'll give it a go. You have Will Fort, Kristen Wiig, Ryan Felipe, Paris Booth, Maya Rudolph, and Val Kilmer, as well as a lot of other uh, familiar faces, especially wrestlers. The likes of fucking Mark Henry, Chris Jericho, um, the fuck is his fucking name? I forget his name now. The Big Show. I think I can't remember what his actual name is, but loads of these fuckers anyway uh, make appearances in it, and it's just I, I couldn't get over how good it is. It's MacGruber's effectively a piss take of MacGyver. So obviously you know MacGyver, he'd be 
put in a situation where he's got fucking nothing. He's no weapons or anything. And he'll have to improvise building stuff to get through the situation. He could build a weapon. He could build something to open a door, pick locks, all that kind of shit. And Will Fort effectively plays a version of that. Uh, he's going on a revenge mission against Val Kilmer. And Val Kilmer is in possession of a nuclear warhead that will probably blow up Washington, D.C. And his bad guy name is Dieter von Kunth. So, C-U-N-T-H. And the mileage they got out of that joke is astonishing because it's so fucking dumb. But every time they do it, it's just gold. Like this, It takes the piss out of so many movies and so many tropes. Especially one of the funniest scenes in the whole movie takes the piss out of the typical 80s action movie sex scene. And it's... I remember I nearly fucking collapsed laughing at it. There's so much goodness in this movie. It's so irreverent. It's so dumb. It's so offensive. It's so over the top. It's just perfect. I think it's easy. It's a, it's a comedy movie that... There's so many really great comedy movies that even though I love them and I watch them again, certain jokes don't work. Every time I watch this movie, I see something new that builds on how funny I think it normally is. This is easily one of my all-time favourite comedy movies and one of the best of this decade, without question. At number 85, we have Christopher Nolan's fucking mind-bending masterpiece, which is 2010's Inception. Now, I actually haven't watched this in a very long time, but I remember I watched it to death when it came out. I think I think I saw it twice in the cinema and once I got the Blu-ray I just fucking watched it several times. It was actually one of the first Blu-rays I bought because at first I was just thinking oh, I'm never going to switch over and eventually I did although I'm not as keen to switch over to 4K but again this is for another time. This one though is just it's really it's actually changed movie trailers in a way which is kind of annoying. Uh, the trailer for this invented the big heavy orchestral horns I'm just gonna be used in a context i know it um but most trailers that came out now action set pieces just they have what are known now as inception horns and it's just fucking hilarious that uh this movie has inspired that and so many movies have tried to get the same atmosphere and fail the way it was done in this movie with the amazing score by Hans zimmer was just fantastic You've got huge cast, Leonardo DiCaprio, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Ellen Page, Tom Hardy, Ken Watanabe again, Killian Murphy, Marion Cotillard, Michael Caine, uh, a surprising appearance from Tom Berenger, and Pete Possaways, and Lucas Haas has a small part too. Just totally fucking crazy about thieves who know how to pretty much break into your mind. <laughs> That's uh, one way of putting it, where they can break into your mind and extract or implant ideas that can make you do things in the real world. And the whole film has this interesting premise where you have certain trinkets that you can ground yourself with so you know what is a dream and what isn't. And the different, the, the different way time works within dreams. So something that could be fucking 10 seconds in re the real world could be four hours in a dream, something like that. And they play around with all this stuff so much and there's so many interesting ideas and... It's just totally unique. It took both Nolan and his brother, I think, nine years to write it. And it's no surprise, because the amount of fucking complicated, amazing stuff going on in this is just fantastic. Although, there's a lot of people out there who pride themselves on going, oh, I can explain and understand Inception. It's like, okay. Uh, they make it very easy to understand and explain. It's a complicated subject matter, so brilliantly told that it anyone can explain it and that's what's so good about this movie it doesn't feel dumbed down it just feels well explained and it's 
fucking amazingly well made and acted and I mean it's Christopher Nolan Christopher Nolan along with Scorsese along with a lot of the kind of heavy hitters of the last well for himself anyway 25 years or 30 years they're just on a different level and he's up there and I'll watch anything he does and Tenet is coming out this year and I can't fucking wait for it at 84 we have a tough one because I was I was trying to decide whether or not I was going to have this movie or its sequel which only came out last year and was one of the best of last year and that's 2010's Toy Story 3 directed by Lee Uncrick it's a weird name I, I don't really know who he is this one though is just this got the ball rolling on the whole very bittersweet side of Toy Story because the first movie is it's kind of all about the toys I suppose the second movie is about them their kind of growth and letting go of the past and all this kind of stuff but the third film is when it's it's a very movie about progression uh, because obviously Andy who owns the toys is older now and on the way to college and it's about his life and how all the toys are dealing with it and they're effectively accidentally put in a box which brings them to I think it's accidentally as far as I remember uh, to a daycare centre and they're, they're accidentally donated there and now they're in this daycare centre which is almost like a prison because it's run by Ned Beatty who plays this big cuddly pink bear called what's his fucking name Lotso and he's kind of the overseer of this place and they're kind of not used to it it's very different and they obviously they get played with all the time but they're kind of stuck with the, the little kids and there's a whole I'm probably explaining too much of the the general plot of it here but it's basically about them coming to terms with life and there's certain parts of this movie that feel so fucking dark for a kids movie like the acceptance of death and things like that a lot going on but it's just so fucking smart it's brilliantly handled and it actually is a good kind of life lesson and stuff for kids like I think this movie's an essential watch for the kids and obviously you've got the huge crew you've got Tom Hanks Tim Allen John Cusack Michael Keaton Whoopi Goldberg Bonnie Hunt Wallace Shawn John Ratzenberger Don Rickles uh, the late great Don Rickles I should say uh, Orly Ermey loads of people or Kristen Schaal actually makes a appearance too she's got the most distinct irritating voice I've ever heard but loads of great people involved in this movie and it's just fantastically animated this was a big step up because like, when you look at the first movie as groundbreaking and amazing as it is and it still looks fantastic don't get me wrong but when you compare it to what they do in both Toy Story 3 and Toy Story 4 it is incredible the progression they've had so this movie fantastic highly highly recommend it at 83 we have the first of a couple there's a few in here uh south korean thrillers this film when i I first saw i was just so fucking blown away i couldn't even believe my eyes uh it's directed by kim ji woon and it's called i saw the devil and it came out in 2010 now this movie the, the main selling points for this movie uh, well actually no there was two selling points but the biggest one was the fact that uh, Min Sik Choi is in it and he's obviously the lead character in Old Boy so I was like I want to see more of him he's just fucking amazing in Old Boy he's uh, just a regular kind of schlubby wash up who is broken down to the point where he's a fucking violent animal but you're, you're on his side in this movie he plays one of the most psychotic irredeemably horribly disgusting rapist murderers like it's not one of these characters where you're looking at him thinking okay he's vile and evil but he's kind of charming or something no this guy's just a disgusting absolute scumbag and obviously uh 
Byung-hun Lee, who Kim Ji-woon directed, or Ji-woon Kim, I don't know, I've, like I said, Korean names confuse the fuck out of me. He directed in another movie called A Bittersweet Life. And when I saw that, I said, okay, both of these lads I wants to watch. So when I had three of these all together, I was like, okay, I'm sold. And the general plot is, is that uh, Byung-hun Lee, or Lee Byung-hun, is an elite cop who, his wife is brutally murdered by Min-sik Choi. And he decides, I'm going to go on the ultimate revenge spree where I'm going to put this guy through a series of psychological and physical tortures for as long as needs be. And it's it's a strange one because it's a cat and mouse movie where the cat has the mouse but releases the mouse just so he can catch him again and fucking put him through more punishment and release him again and put him through even more punishment. It's just, it's just one of the most unique, visceral, brutal revenge movies I've ever seen. Like some of the stuff, first of all, the set pieces and camera work and everything are jaw-dropping. How they achieve some of it is beyond me. But the brutality is something else. Like this movie was actually cut in certain countries as well because there's references to cannibalism and all i think korea has a slightly censored version of it because it's just too fucked up but it's it's an extreme thriller really tense and it 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 more than borders on horror it's basically a horror movie i can't recommend it enough though if that's what you're into because it, it, there's some rough shit going on in it but it's cathartic at the same time there's certain certain action scenes are just incredible how they're done can't recommend this one enough so that's that number 93 i saw the devil and number 92 in a very different oh shit no not 90 number 82 see i'm all over the fucking place here so 83 was i saw the devil 82 is richard ioadi's 2010 gem totally hidden gem at this stage uh submarine this movie was just fucking delightful and sad and all kinds of shit and like i said i like drama movies this one is more a comedy at the same time, though. It's a, it's a love story between a 15-year-old Welsh boy and named Oliver and this really, I suppose, alluring and almost terrifying girl, Jordana, who is his classmate at school. And it's all about their weird, dysfunctional kind of relationship that they have. And I think he's played by Craig Roberts and Yasmin Page plays Jordana. And... You also have like great appearances from Sally Hawkins, Noah Taylor, and Paddy Considine. But it's just, I think it's set in the 80s as well. It has a really strange, muted 80s look. I'm pretty sure it is set then. And you're just following these characters and their rocky love story that's going on. It's really awkward teenage situations to be in. Richard Ayoade really blew me away with this one. Because I was always apprehensive about him. Because I used to hate the IT crowd. I've actually come around to it. But when I saw his name attached, I was like, oh, can't be fucked watching that. Then I saw the double, which I thought was brilliant. So I thought, okay, yeah, he's actually one to watch. Although, I can't remember if that's on this list. It might not be, actually. I think that's in my top 40 one. I'll, I'll get to it eventually. But this one really blew me away. It's really endearing. Some great music in it. It's a lovely looking film. It's one of those really bittersweet kind of... It's a hard one to describe. But it's. Uh, I think it's totally worth watching and really enjoyable. At 81, we have another appearance from one of the finest actors of all time, Michael Shannon, giving one of the most intense Michael Shannon-y performances out there. He he's almost has his own genre of cage rage, where when he goes mad, he goes fucking mad. And you see it brilliantly in uh, Boardwalk Empire several times where he just goes full Michael Shannon. This one, he plays... Just a regular working class husband in this small town. He's married to Jessica Chaston. 
And now I have to try and remember this correctly because I think it's his brother or someone who lives in the area, but Shea Wingham plays him and you've got Ray McKinnon in a role too. Lots of people you'd recognise in this movie. And it's Jeff Nichols from 2011. Jeff Nichols has done some fantastic stuff. Uh, but this one, he's just a regular working class guy who suddenly starts to have intense apocalyptic visions. And he essentially becomes a prepper. He wants to build a bunker in his backyard and the whole town starts to think that he might actually just be losing his fucking mind. And the less said about it from then on, the better. This movie is just serious, incredible performances. Michael Shannon is just... I've said before, this guy is one who doesn't get nearly enough fucking credit for how good he is. Everything I've seen him in, he's fantastic. Even shitty movies. That fucking, uh, what was it called? The Night Before. Kind of shitty stoner comedy movie. He makes an appearance in that and he's fucking great in it. Like, he's just... I'll always watch it and he's involved in because he's just fucking fantastic. This one could be one of his best performances ever, though. It is mind-blowing. Again, this is like what happened in my top 20. I say mind-blowing and amazing and excellent. All these fucking words that I'm going to keep repeating, but you're going to hear them a lot because I don't have more than a hundred different ways to say the same thing, which makes me sound like a complete fucking moron, but ah, you know what I'm talking about. So number 81, Take Shelter. Incredible movie. Go watch it. And number 80, this is one that I watched about three or four times when it came out, but I haven't watched it in a good few years now, and it's one I love that when the whole conversation about modern day grindhouse movies comes up it doesn't get nearly enough mentioned that it should and that is 2011's hobo with a shotgun directed by jason eisner now when the grindhouse movie came out there was a lot of fake trailers going around so you have the ones that rob zombie did edgar wright did uh robert rodriguez himself did for machete there's a lot of trailers that play in the grindhouse movie but there were some movies that they they said in ideas that were rejected or trailers that were rejected. And one of them was Hobo with a Shotgun. And I was just fucking blown away. Now actually I want to check something really quickly. Because I'm pretty sure it's legitimate. But if I'm wrong I'm, I'm very surprised at that. Yes it is legitimate. So this movie shot on the grimiest 35 mil you've ever fucking seen. It's, it genuinely looks like an old movie for like, that might have been out in the 80s that has a has like 70s grit with ultra gory 80s violence but it's obviously only made in the last while but Jason Eisner he made this little short film for, called Hobble with a Shotgun it looked kind of hammy he shot it on a DV camera but everyone was saying oh why wasn't this included as part of the Grindhouse trailer this is fucking amazing this is what we want to see so he said you know fuck it I'm going to make this a real movie and he did, and I absolutely love it. It's Rucker Herrer plays the titular hobo, who he's just sick of violence and corruption and shittiness in the city. He just wants to make it as a normal guy and make some real money. So he wants to buy a lawnmower, but with the amount of corruption, rape, murder, violence, everything that's going on, he decides instead of buying a lawnmower, I'm going to buy a shotgun and I'm going to fucking punish all these scumbags in the city. And it's just, ah, it's just total exploitation, schlocky fun riddled with fucking gore like crazy amounts of extreme gore some shit in the movie that you wouldn't expect as well there's some very dark stuff going on this really does feel like something that would have been made in the early 80s or the 70s where people would have really complained about it i think because there's a very tongue-in-cheek fun atmosphere to this they're able to get away with it because if this is played seriously you just know that there'd be uh, some big problems with some of the stuff that happens in it but 
I absolutely love it. And I remember I was going mad trying to figure out the opening music. Because this really lovely orchestral, maybe not be the word, but it's like strings and vocal apparatus and this really beautiful music at the start. And I thought, is that the cannibal holocaust music? And then I was listening to it. They're very similar. But it's actually the Mark of the Devil music. Uh, which a friend of mine, Donald, pointed out. Because I, I remember just thinking, like, I can't find this song anywhere. I thought it was, like, was it made for this movie? But it wasn't. It just fits perfectly for this movie. And a great old-fashioned 70s-style grindhouse logo for Hobo the Shotgun. It's just crazy, crazy fucking fun. And I highly recommend it. At number 80, we have one by Lynn Ramsey who will be making another appearance on this list, uh, in a 2011 movie called We Need to Talk About Kevin. Now, I didn't I didn't know anything about this before watching it. I just knew that John C. Reilly was in it, and it was a serious movie, so that had me on board. Tilda Swindon is always good. And this is the first time I ever saw Ezra Miller in. And now, he plays the oldest version of Kevin, because it's got, I think it's three different chapters in his life. He was a really young boy, he was a teenager, and then he was an older teenager. Uh, I don't actually know who the other guys are but the whole movie you're wondering what this kid did so something has gone up or gone wrong with this kid Kevin and everyone in the whole city is kind of against this family because of it and it just shows the psychological breakdown Tilda Swindon is going through and it shows the kind of their life leading up to this moment and it's just totally unpredictable there's times where you think you might know what's going on but this goes a totally different direction and there's certain revelations in it that i actually remember being totally gobsmacked by it's visually incredible the music is so tense it's just one of the best fucking movies in the decade for sure i absolutely love it i haven't watched it in a long time that's one i have on blu-ray just staring at me right now that i'm dying to revisit so that's uh in the near future i'll be watching that again so number 80 i think i might have said 90 again i'm really fucking up these numbers here but number 80 we need to talk about Kevin. At number 79, we have a movie that is just the definition of what the fuckery. And I remember but I remember being recommended this movie because I, I, I heard different things that go on that, that don't happen in it. But I also don't want to say a lot about it because the less I reveal about this, the better. So <laughs> I'm going gonna, gonna to try to be as vague as possible. So all I'm going to say is is that Pedro Almodovar directed it. He obviously directed... Uh, what's it called now? Oh, Pain and Glory. That's what it was. Um, he directed that with Antonio Banderas, who's also the star of this movie. And this is a movie from 2011 called The Skin I Live In. I'm going to be so vague about this because I don't want anyone to know much about it. But Antonio Banderas is an amazing plastic surgeon who is working on a project to come up with synthetic skin that can withstand extreme amounts of damage. And he has a woman locked in his house that he's using as a sort of guinea pig to test out his project. That's all I'm going to say. I should really be this vague about all the movies, really. But that's all I'm going to say about this movie. I don't want you to know anything else about it. Just go in based on that. And that it is fucking superb. You won't know where it's going to go. I'm not going to say it now. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. The Skin I Live In from 2011. Directed by Pedro Almodovar. Starring Antonio Banderas. Fucking amazing. At 78. We have the wankiest movie on this list. Now most people when they hear that they go. Oh it's really pretentious. 
No, I just mean that there's so much wanking in this movie that it actually became sad. Uh, and that's Steve McQueen, not the Steve McQueen you know, but the British director Steve McQueen, and his 2011 movie Shame, starring Michael Fassbender, as well as Carrie Mulligan, James Badge Dale, and fuck, I can't remember what his name is now. There's a, there's a few people in it, you'd recognise them all. Uh, but this is just a fucking raw, visceral drama about a rich New Yorker guy who has an extreme sex addiction. But because, obviously, he's not like some fucking street-walking, homeless hooker type who fucking just gets into all these fucking situations. He's got a lot of money, so and he's suave. He's like a fastbender. He can fucking pick up anyone. But he just has a brutal addiction to sex and terrible fear of commitment. And Carrie Mulligan is his sister who moves in with him. And it's just the level of tension. Like like I said, I might have mentioned this on another uh, episode before. But you see him in the movie just wanking. Because he's like, okay, he's addicted to porn. He's addicted to anything to do with sex. And the first time you see it, I remember hearing kind of chuckles in the cinema. And the second and third time he's still going, you're kind of like, oh, he's at it again. But by the sixth or seventh time, you're like, geez, this guy has a severe problem <laughs> with how this is done. And the, the way it's kind of executed in the movie isn't meant to be funny. You're kind of sitting there watching going, oh, this guy really can't help himself. And there's some really graphic sexual content in this movie, like boundary pushing. It got an NC-17 rating. Um, but what I found really funny was when the lights came up at the premiere I was at, fucking Pat Kenny was sitting two seats ahead of me. And some of the stuff that he had to endure was just hysterical to me when I when I realised. But this movie is just it's it's not just like obviously sex is a big part of it, but you're really just watching his crippling fear and difficulty in having love for anyone and it's just it's a tough drama. But the the way this is shot, there's so many long takes. Steve McQueen, I mentioned the long takes in Hunger before. With this movie, there's a part where he goes jogging down the streets of New York and it's mesmerizing i don't even know how they managed to pull it off but he's sprinting for about three minutes down, or jogging for about three minutes through the streets of new york and it's totally gripping and there's other there's a scene where he's going to dinner with this woman and it's from outside i think it's very slowly zooming in but you're watching maybe a 10 minute dialogue scene of them just on a date and you're totally captivated and one of the best scenes is carrie mulligan singing new york new york ultra close-up of her face unbroken for the whole song and it's just fascinating how they did it and i'm actually i'm very excited to watch that movie again but it's it's a rough one and uh there's actually i'm pretty sure when they auditioned like a fast bender they just they realized that he has an absolute horse knob and they just wrote in a scene where he walks towards the camera just so they could just show it. this movie is he probably doesn't need to ever make a movie again he's probably happy now that Every woman in the world knows he's fucking hung like a horse and he's just delighted with himself now. Just said, write a scene in where I walk towards the camera, let the world know, and now I don't have to ever try again in my life. Um, unfortunately, he took that on board acting-wise because he hasn't actually been good in anything in years and that's unfortunate because he's generally a fucking great actor. So, forget about his knob and go back to acting well. Number 77 is... This is one as well that kind of a lot of people aren't sure of. Uh, people like who I thought would have loved it didn't. Some people who I weren't sure would like it loved it. So it's a strange one. Uh, but this is William Freakin's 2011 thriller, very dark comedy, 
Killer Joe. Now, this movie has genuinely put some people I know off having KFC again. And I'm not going to explain why. You fucking know if, when you see the movie. But this is just a really gritty, ugly, mean-spirited, just shit-heap movie with the worst people in it. Uh, now, acting-wise, you've got the best. you got Matthew McConaughey in it. Uh, and you have Juno Temple, Thomas Hayden Church, Emile Hirsch, and Gina Gershon. Um, there's a lot of hammy performances, but there's something just so bizarrely captivating about this movie. It's like they know it's just the most fucking rundown white trash shithole characters that are you're just forced to deal with because usually you have a character you kind of identify with all of these characters are cunts and the general plot is that Emile Hirsch and Thomas Hayden Church are father and son and of Gina Gershon's mother-in-law and Juno Juno Temple is their sister and they pretty much band together with an idea to hire a hitman who's also a cop played by Matthew McConaughey to kill their mother so they can get the insurance money and live off that. Already you know all these characters are scum of the earth. But the levels of depravity this movie goes to, particularly in the last half hour, are you just you just really don't expect it. It's I think it's fucking great. It's an ugly as fuck, mean, vicious movie. And really surprisingly funny like I remember the first time I watched it I thought Thomas Hayden Church was really shitting it because he's so over the top but when I watched it the second time he just had me laughing the whole time I think it's, it, there's a lot of intentional weirdness in this movie but when you get to that last half hour you're you're not going to forget it and I, I think this is a fucking great movie so that's number 77 Killer Joe actually no I think that was 76 I really should have fucking <laughs> I was talking about preparation before I have fucking reasonable preparation here I have all the fucking windows I need open but I for some reason have mixed up the numbers so that was 76 now we're on to 75 at last so I can fucking move on from this absolute mess that I've just created for myself this is a movie that had always been recommended to me and it was, it was I don't know I get it for the last decade i've been changing how i watch movies i've talked about this before and how i approach things and reasons for watching stuff and reasons why i give things another chance and whatever else but there's a lot of there was a time before where i'd be like ah, not interested in that it's probably gonna be shit and i wouldn't watch it and it was stupid because now i call people who do that cunts and i'm right because i was a cunt this is a movie directed by gavin o'connor and i remember just seeing the trailer just going eh it looks like fucking it wants to be rocky again I found this more powerful than Rocky. And that's a big statement to say. Because this movie blew my fucking mind. I only watched it a few years ago too. After I got the Blu-ray. And that is Warrior from 2011. Starring Tom Hardy, Joel Edgerton, Nick Nolte. And an appearance from Frank Grillo. And a few others. Comedian Brian Cannon shows up. Sam Shepard. Or no, it's not Sam Shepard. I forgot his name. Sam Sheridan. Um, And surprisingly Kurt Angle. <laughs> is in this movie uh, not being shite which you'd probably normally expect but fucking hell this is a powerful film This it, it's on the same lines as Rocky in that it's a very underdog sort of story but the, the general idea is that Tom Hardy has gone AWOL and he comes back to town and wants to compete in MMA again and Joel Edgerton also is a an MMA I think he's a teacher or he's involved in it um or he's like left that life behind he's moving on and goes straight I think he's a regular teacher actually 
and he's friends with Frank Grillo, who's his teacher for MMA. And they're both brothers, and their father is Nick Nolte, who's a raging alcoholic on the mend. And it's about all these three characters coming head to head. I I don't want to say too much because it's just it's the less you know the better. But this film is ultra powerful. It's it's I think a lot of sports movies tend to follow a similar formula, but you're so involved in these characters, and Nick Nolte puts in a blinding performance in this. Um, but you're so involved in the characters that you're just any decision that's made, you're just totally gripped by and you, you you don't want certain things to happen you want other things to happen and you're you can't take your eyes off until you fucking see how it ends that's the best way i can put it but this movie are just one of the best sports movies i've ever watched i thoroughly thoroughly recommend it and again you don't even have to be into mma or anything like i mean i watch the odd mma match if like friends are watching it or whatever else i wouldn't call myself even nearly an expert but you don't need to be to enjoy this this is just enjoyable in general absolutely watch this movie i think it's fantastic and i think i don't know if it was out around the same time as the fighter i don't think it was actually it could have been maybe the fighter was 2010 it's going back a while i can't remember but i know that there was a there was a lot of comparison between the two but to me this is easily the better of the two and i really like the fighter too i think christian bell puts in a fantastic fucking performance but this movie is just 10 times as powerful and way better <laughs> that's the best way i can put it so number 80 or number 75 fucking hell mix up the numbers again 75 is warrior and now number 74 there we go getting there is one that i've actually referenced a lot on this podcast because every time i'm talking about movie certificates and how certain movies that are for instance like midnight run that i mentioned last time which are good natured fun basically fucking family movies that have a bit of swearing in them are given the same certificate as this movie which is so bleak and vicious and violent and has rape and murder and incest and torture and all kinds of shit going on in it and that is the girl the dragon tattoo the 2011 remake by david fincher i know a lot of people who haven't bothered their arse with this film because they saw the original tv movie with um numi rapace the one that i can't remember the director's name now but the original version of a millennium girl dragon tattoo uh who didn't really like it they didn't really think the book was much and have avoided this version and i'm praying that they will fucking reconsider and watch this because this movie is a masterpiece i mean you can already expect quality when you have fucking david fincher's name attached but this one, I think, I feel like it's not swept under the rug, but I feel like it doesn't get enough attention. And it follows Daniel Craig. He's a journalist in Sweden who's had his name totally disgraced. And he decides to kind of get out of the spotlight by investigating the disappearance of this rich patriarch's niece that happened 40 years ago. Um, I won't explain why he has to do that, but he's decides to go to this where this house is and there's several families around there lots of people and he has to investigate each one and treat everyone as a suspect but he does this with the help of a hacker the same hacker who led to him being disgraced um played by Rooney Mara and it's the two of them trying to solve this mystery and it goes really fucking dark vicious horrible places 
Uh, you've also appearances from Christopher Plummer, Stellan Skarsgård, Skarsgård uh, Stephen Burkoff, Robin Wright, Jolly Richardson, and uh, Julian Sands also has an appearance there too. So there's a lot of famous people that you would recognise. Brilliant performances. The cinematography is incredible. And this is one of those movies where there's a lot of... I mean, it's shot digitally for a start. This is one of the best digitally shot movies I've ever seen. Uh, but it has a lot of CGI in parts you would never guess. Never in a million years guess. And a lot of it's kind of tweaking and getting things perfectly. And this is one of them cases where I'm fucking so behind CGI. Because they did stuff on this that you never noticed it. The biggest problem with CGI is you're aware of CGI. And you're able to go, that's good CGI, that's bad CGI. With this, you have no fucking clue it's even there. Um, but the performance is incredible. The music uh, is, again, I think Atticus Ross. But it's it has uh, Trent Reznor. He's involved in the music, and yeah, I'm pretty sure it's the two of them. Anytime they go near music, it's or scores for a movie, it's just fucking blinding. And this is no different. It's fucking so tense, so good. It's a long movie. It's one of those satisfyingly long movies. It's about two hours forty minutes, where you're just glad it's that long. And you're just completely invested in what's going on. I enjoyed the TV movie, but it's lacking so much style and like there is substance there, but it's just it's not as compelling. It really isn't. And I know people who've watched it, they've been put off. Watch this movie. It is so much more compelling. The performances are better. It's so visually fucking good. And it also has an amazing cover of Is Your Love Strong Enough? That's more than enough reason for you to actually watch this movie. So get on this one. This is number 74, The Girl of the Dragon Tattoo from 2011. Next at 73 is what I would consider to be probably the best... No, not probably the best. One of the best, because like I said, I, the, the whole order is mixed up until I get to my top ten. Comedy movies of the decade, and it's 2012's 21 Jump Street. I said that really weird. So 21 Jump Street from 2012, directed by Phil Lord and Chris Miller, who went on to do the Lego movie. And uh, this was such a fucking surprise. Like, I was expecting this to be fine. I expected it to go in and go, ah, yeah, that was good fun, it was okay. I did not expect to be howling at this and still howling after several rewatches. This is such a sharp, well written, hilarious, daft, but also very smart comedy movie. Uh, following both Jonah Hill and Channing Tatum as two opposites in high school who, upon finishing high school, have both trained to be cops and end up becoming best mates so they're kind of an unlikely duo of best mates and because of their youngish appearance which i think the, the joke pretty much is that they don't look like they're 17 but they say you both look young their police captain by the way angrily played by ice cube with perfect casting um they're sent to pretend to be high school students and infiltrate a school and find a drug dealer who's been selling drugs around the school and you have Appearances from a young Brie Larson, Dave Franco, and you've got Rob Riggle in there too. And Nick Offerman even has an appearance. And it's just, every nearly every scene has a brilliant line. It's, the direction it goes is great. It's one of these films that you, you tend to see a lot with action comedies where um, the first, and it happens with a lot of comedy horror as well, where the first hour or so of, of a, an average 90 minute movie, first hour commits to the action and the comedy being equal and the horror and the comedy. And then the last half hour is usually just a general action movie or a general comedy movie. This one, or maybe general horror, this one perfectly balances comedy and action all the way through. 
and it's so fucking well done. The action scenes are actually compelling and well made, but it's also so funny, and there's so many lines that will just you'll remember in days to come. There's a point in it where both of the lads end up on drugs, and I remember losing my eyesight. I was laughing so fucking hard, especially at Channing Tatum. He's just he he proved his chops here because I used to not like him. I used to find him very annoying, and then I saw this and I thought, okay, I like this guy, and now. Since this movie, the last eight years, I've loved him and everything I've seen. He's always funny. He's got brilliant comedic timing. And I'm just very happy this movie got made. It's fucking hysterical. So 21 Jump Street, number 73 on this list. Number 72 is potentially the biggest head fuck of the entire list. <laughs> uh, at least what's coming to mind now. Cause some of these, I won't say that these movies are surprising me as I see them. It's just that I've put this list together over the last few months. And I'm kind of forgetting what's on it. Even though I know it should be here. Uh, and obviously because I haven't ordered it. It's a bit different. But now I'm just repeating myself. But this is a movie from 2012. From Leos Carax. And it's the extremely. Totally original. Unique. Bizarre. Fascinating. Horrifying. Funny. Lovely. Fucked up mad as fucking balls movie holy motors and uh, this movie stars dennis levant as this guy i can't even remember his name i don't even think he has a, a proper name in the movie at least it's not coming to me now but he's a guy who travels around in the back of a limousine dressing up and becoming these characters these people that he just goes out and portrays these little scenes it's like a whole movie of weird fucking bizarre vignettes where he is every character there's times where he's playing a fucking really old woman there's time where he's playing a crazy tramp running around eating fucking flowers there's times where he's a russian gangster there's times where he's a a father of girl going to a, a birthday party there's all these different bizarre set pieces that he's the the actor in and the movie's very fourth wall breaking in that way because it's like the movie knows these are set pieces too. And you're just following all these different things going on with this character. And you've appearances from Eva Mendes, uh, very surprisingly Kylie Minogue. To, to think that Kylie Minogue is in this movie is fascinating because <laughs> some of the stuff that goes on, you, you'd be amazed you put her name to it. And Edith Scobe, who she actually was in a movie i've not watched it this is one that's been on my list for years but it's called eyes without a face and it's it's like almost like a sequel to that because her character behaves like the poster for that movie there's a very clear direct visual reference to that movie and it makes you wonder is that supposed to be in the same world and it asks a lot of questions but this movie is just totally unique there's a one section in the movie that i remember catching me totally off guard and it's a musical set piece happens out of nowhere and because this movie's like it's such a strange mix of different things it doesn't feel strange that it happens out of nowhere it's just that i remember watching it going this is a fascinating amazing musical set piece that i would watch as its own thing and here it is thrown in the middle of this movie full of crazy cgi sex and murder and singing and like a musical duet it's just there's no fucking movie out there like this movie it is totally unique and it's amazing and i highly recommend it so number 72 i think it's 72 is holy motors at 71 is what i 
one of the most infuriatingly underrated films in the last decade. For some reason, I know lots of people who I thought would love this film who don't. The majority of people I know absolutely love it and they should. But fucking hell, this movie... And this is another reason why you shouldn't trust IMDb because this has something like six, which is a fucking joke. And this is Andrew Dominic's third movie. Uh, His first movie, Chopper, is amazing. Assassination of Jesse James by the character Robert Ford is one of the best things ever put to fucking film. And this is his film of the decade well his only one of the decade really he did a, a Nick Cave documentary as well which is really good but this film is 2012's Killing Them Softly now, this film is based on a 70s book I think it's Coogan's Trade I could be mixing I know there's Coogan's Bluff but I think that might be a Clint Eastwood film but this one is just fucking one of just the most meanest grittiest fucking crime movies that has come out the last decade it's another introduction to Ben Mendelsohn so it was after I saw Animal Kingdom I saw him in this and I realised yeah this chap is fucking I mean he was already one to watch anyway from that but he really made a fucking name for himself with this one um, but it stars Brad Pitt Scoot McNary um, Ray Liotta Richard Jenkins again who will appear several times because he's just one of the best actors ever as far as I'm concerned um, Sam Shepard makes an appearance here Ray Liotta uh, James Gandolfini's fucking heaps of people you'd recognise in this but it's just a really stylish artistic ugly violent just nasty but really fucking gripping and a brilliantly written piece of work and yeah I, I don't want to say too much about it it's two guys decide well three I guess but two guys follow through with the robbery of a card game which then requires a fixer of sorts to come in and sort the situation out between these junkies and the mafia guys who are running the car game. That's the most basic way I can describe this film. But this is one, and it's fucking, I mean, I suppose the good thing, like I said, I mentioned earlier how I got hereditary in deals for three quid. I got this in deals for 150, which, while it's amazing and I'm delighted I could it is kind of sad that it's just kind of delegated to the deals pile like this is this deserves proper treatment I, ho- I would actually love if Arrow or someone out there or even Criterion or just a good independent label would pick this up and just release a fucking amazing special edition of this big hard case even a digibook something I would I'd just love a really good amazing special edition of this because this is just a masterpiece as far as I'm concerned so definitely give this one a look Oh, I should say number 71 Killing Them Softly from 2012 I know I said it already but I, I'm going to remind myself at the end of each film just so I keep track and number 70 then you have one that I haven't actually watched since it came out I only watched it the one time and I remember being fucking blown away by it but I did pick up the Blu-ray then about a year or two later maybe could have been two or three years later but this one I just thought was fucking amazing and it's another one from Steve McQueen who I mentioned earlier on um it's not Hunger, but it's... Although, it was Hunger. That was 2008, I think, so that wouldn't have qualified anyway. Um, but this one is 12 Years a Slave from 2013. And it's by... Did I mention Steve McQueen? I feel like I might have said him... Yeah, I did. I definitely said him a minute ago, but yeah. 12 Years a Slave. This film was just fucking seriously raw. Uh, and just fucking fantastic. And another one where it's full of people you'd reckon... Like, uh, this is the first movie I ever saw Lupita Nyong'o in and she made a seriously good impression on that you've got the likes of Paul Dano Benedict Cumberbatch Michael Fassbender again 
uh, Sarah Paulson, Scoot McNary, Paul Giamatti, Brad Pitt, Michael K. Williams, and of course the lead character Chiwetel Ejiofor, or the lead actor. Um, he goes through some fucking hell in this. I'm like, like I said, with twelve years or not a twelve years slave. Shame. He just knows how to do these fucking mind blowing long takes that he does stuff you don't even think is possible to achieve and in this one there's some outrageously raw and difficult scenes put to fucking film in crazy long takes like there's one that's uh feels like it goes on for about five minutes but it's i won't say what anything about characters but there's a person hanging um with their feet just touching the ground enough for them to not die and it's a lingering shot and it feels like it never ends and it just really fucking puts you in that position. Um, I mean, the title m- makes it pretty obvious there. It's about a slave named... It's about a real guy, actually, named Solomon, Solomon Northup, who was a free black man in New York who was abducted and then sold into the slave trade. And it's as grim as that sounds. But it's amazing that they've actually made a film like this that doesn't feel like heavy-handed or over the top or ridiculous like it feels very grounded and true to history and it's just i mean it's one of those films it's hard to call ugly because it's like i suppose it is ugly i mean obviously it's slavery of course it's fucking ugly but because it's such a decent art piece like it's hard to to call it ugly but it's just it really is something fucking fantastic and i think there was actually kind of there wasn't a lot of movies about slavery um there's been a lot more now there's been several now since this has come out but i think this one kind of started a new <laughs> trend is the wrong word but uh i suppose it got the ball rolling on a lot more stories that come out it's like, like harriet was one that was out just this year or it might have been released at the end of last year over here but it's in the last while anyway so yeah there's lots of them but this one is just seriously fucking good i mean steve mcqueen so far can do no wrong he might talk some bollocks sometimes but he's a fucking superb director he hasn't let me down at all in that way um and i was i nearly included widows in this top 100 i really really fucking like that film but i probably wouldn't make the top 100 but definitely worth watching and another one that just has insane long takes that are fucking almost too good for their own good now that makes no sense but yeah number 70 that's not 71 is it no 70 12 years a slave from 2013 and I've unintentionally uh, <laughs> had these two films back to back. Another slave film. Although when I say that 12 Years a Slave kind of got the ball rolling on movies about slavery. I mean that in the sense of serious movies about slavery and more factual ones. This one is, I can't call it exploitation. I think it's an exploitation movie in terms of the type of action it is. But it doesn't, it's not exploitative of slavery and that is the master himself quentin tarantino's 2012 movie django unchained um i mean there's not a lot i can really say about tarantino that i haven't said a million times already i suppose i haven't really talked about django though i mean i've been talking about once by time in hollywood constantly for the last uh for every episode i don't think i've actually done an episode of this podcast where i haven't mentioned it hmm. anyone who's uh because i mean once i fucking record these and put them together and I tend to forget a lot of the stuff I talk about, which is probably why I've repeated myself 20 million times. But anyone who's listened and has a decent memory, let me know if I've actually mentioned Tarantino in every episode. And that includes the two-part Oscar one. Well, actually, no, of course I'd mention him in that. Um, maybe I didn't mention him last week. I don't know. 
anyway, someone let me know. But this is a fucking amazing film. You have this is his first time working with Leonardo DiCaprio as well, but you have Jamie Foxx who plays the titular Django and Christoph Waltz it's the first was it the first thing I've seen him? No, in Glorious Bastards was. Although he won was it this one he won an Oscar for? I think he got the Oscar for this. Uh, and Tarantino I think also got it for the screenplay. Um but he plays a German bounty hunter who frees Django and essentially recruits him to help do or it, it recruits him as another bounty hunter and they go around taking people out and obviously it turns a lot of heads because uh, you have a free slave well he's not a slave anymore you have a free man walking around with this German bounty hunter armed to the teeth and the public don't know what to do about it but they end up going head to head with how did I forget his name Leonardo DiCaprio fucking hell my brain's on fire here um Never going head to head with him because he may have Django's estranged wife. No, estranged not the right word. His wife, anyway. They might, he has her as a slave, and they're embarking on a mission to try to get her back. Uh, you have blinding performances from all of them, especially uh, well, with the addition of Samuel L. Jackson, who is just fuck. This is probably one of the best villainous roles he's ever done. Because uh, he's just a real, he's a piece of shit like no other in this movie. Uh, Kerry Washington as well is fantastic. James Amar has two parts in this. And you have the phenomenal Walton Goggins, who I will just watch in literally anything. I don't care what it is, I'll watch it. He actually has some fucking cheesy looking Lifetime style family sitcom. And I want to watch it purely because he's in it. That's how good he is. Um, he doesn't quite shine as much in this as he does in The Hateful Eight let's say because he doesn't have as big a part but he's fucking great in this but yeah this movie is just one of the most entertaining 2 hours 40 minutes you'll ever spend it's ultra violent like cartoonishly violent but it ne- anytime it's showing you the horrors of slavery it's never over the top it's really serious gritty and horrible it makes you feel horrible but when the revenge aspects come in and when the bounties come in it's over-the-top cartoonish violence. I think that was a smart decision as well. Uh, plus, Savage soundtrack. Excellent acting. Brilliant set pieces. Loads of tension. I think he was trying to... keep... the tension of Inglorious Bastards, but make it a bit more fun. And I think for the most part, he did a great job of that. So this film is fucking phenomenal. I've watched it so many times. I actually... I saw it twice, maybe three times in the cinema. Fully. But I was working in the cinema at the time when this properly came out. So I got to see at least 40 minutes of this movie almost every day for <laughs> fucking several weeks. Because I'd be in and out of the screens and I would see... I always saw the ending because you'd have to wait at the end of a, a movie to kind of guide people out and then tidy up. So I got to see the ending of this movie so many times and I just fucking love it every time. and never got sick of it. So that's the sign of a fucking great movie. And plus DiCaprio puts in one of his best roles ever. Which he quite literally drew blood to fucking do. So if that's not enough reason to check it out, I don't know what is. But number 69, Django Unchained from 2012. I'm starting to think now I should have actually had shame at number 69. It would have been a bit more appropriate content-wise. But let's move on. At 68, this film blew my fucking mind. Um, Pun half intended. um, Which you'll understand now in a second. It is Jeremy Saulnier's Blue Ruin from 2013. Now, I saw this... I actually wanted to see this because of the poster. The poster's fucking so good. 
Um, obviously teal and orange is a kind of tired colour palette for posters it's in fucking everything especially well although I think posters are getting a bit better now once people really got sick of teal and orange they stopped doing it as much but for a lot of that last decade there was teal and orange posters this one is teal and orange but it's fucking amazing how they do it really good silhouette really atmospheric it just sets the tone of the movie so well and I've said this before about Jeremy Sonia's films well at least two of them uh, including this he makes well he's one of a few directors and I'll mention the other one later but he's one of these directors that makes the movies that I've always wanted to see and makes the movies I've always wanted to make if I've ever come up with movie ideas which I come up with fucking movie ideas all the time I write them down some have turned into little screenplays some have turned into nothing but every time I'm doing them or coming up with ideas I'm always thinking trying to think outside the box and do things characters don't generally do in movies and all that kind of shit and in this movie the lead character does every decision that you don't expect him to make but it's probably what you would do like you'd see these movies like any other movie would go in a direction where you're like okay he's obviously going to do this and it'll probably work out whereas this he does something like oh shit i never thought about that and it doesn't work and you're like oh fuck so he tried something and it didn't work like there's so much human error in this and it just makes everything so much more compelling like there's at one point he tries to slash a tire of a car and i mean tires are fucking highly pressurized and strong so when he tries it the knife pretty much stays where it is but he slashes his hand while he does it because his, his hand just glides up the knife because he's not that strong that's he's just not this super cool guy that he thinks he is this little things like that and just traps he sets up how he goes about fixing himself just it's hard to describe all the little things but the general plot of the movie is that there's this guy who's homeless and he's living out on the beach and he lives in an old shitty car a blue car and one day a cop comes to pick him up and you think obviously he's probably getting arrested but it's just a cop who actually knows him from years ago and says look the guy who killed your parents is getting released from jail in a few days thought i'd let you know and this sends him on a revenge mission to get the guy who did it after all these years and again the less i say the better the first 20 odd minutes of this movie are dialogue free pretty much and you learn everything you need to know about this character in those moments it's just fucking so well done it's uh Macon blair or mason blair who i mentioned in my top 20 i can't remember why oh yeah he was in the fucking really awful kindred spirits movie uh that lucky mckee made which, by the way, he has uh, one of his, probably his most popular film, The Woman, is now coming to Arrow Video with a special edition that includes the sort of prequel movie Offspring in it. So there's a something worth buying because The Woman's good crack. But I digress. Uh, Blue Ruin from 2013, Jeremy Saulnier, one of the best directors working out there. This movie, absolutely phenomenal. And I can't remember the guy's name now that I'm trying to think of him. Could be Devin Ratray. I might be wrong. I'm probably wrong but the guy who plays buzz in home alone <laughs> makes a brief appearance in this movie and i didn't realize it until afterwards but when i saw him i was like oh fuck he looks entirely different but now if you're looking out for him you'll probably see him but yeah blue ruin from 2013 is a fucking it's a modern masterpiece as far as i'm concerned absolutely incredible and an, an almost a contender for the top 10 like i said the top 10 it's was tough all these films are eligible for that top 10 but it's, i had to really whittle it down and think about what i what i would include in there and this nearly got in so yeah, number 68, Blue Room.
And number 67 is one that really divides people. I know some people who think this is a full-fledged masterpiece, obviously myself included because it's on this list, and some people who think this is the most boring, pretentious, long-winded nonsense that has come out in recent years. And, I mean, partially they're right. There are moments of this uh, that, <laughs> that have their problems, but just the level of atmosphere, the look of the movie, the grit of the movie, it's such a fucking ugly piece of work. But obviously beautiful because it looks amazing as well. It's shot in Thailand. Um, I should probably say what it is. It's 2013's Only God Forgives. Directed by Nicholas Winding Refn. I've actually got. I'm looking at it now. The poster for this on my wall from the cinema. It's fucking huge. And uh, yeah, I pretty much sleep every night with Ryan Gosling watching over me. So uh, all my female listeners must be jealous. I'm probably the odd lad. But this movie is a really bizarre one. It was, it was a, a risky fucking move for both Ryan Gosling and Nick Reffin because this was directly after the success of Drive. And it's a straight... like It, it takes place in, in Bangkok, as I said. And Ryan Gosling is a drug dealer uh, who lives with his brother and they own a Thai boxing club uh, just as a front for it. And their mother, who's played by Christian Scott... Christian Scott... Oh, fucking hell, my mouth's gone to shit. Kristen Scott Thomas. There we go. Um, she owns the place and kind of runs or controls them through it. Um, but his brother is murdered because he's a total scumbag. And I won't say why. You'll understand when you watch the movie. And now the mother, who pretty much bullies Ryan Gosling because his character is very reserved and timid. She pretty much bullies him into going to get revenge on this guy. So... And this is all the while you have... I'm not even going to try to pronounce this. Oh, no, I will try. Vithya... Vithya... Pans Ringarm. I definitely butchered the pronunciation of that name. But he's a a cop in Thailand who's trying to track these lads down. And he's got a very vicious, violent way to inflict justice on people who do wrong. That's about as much as I'm going to say. But this whole movie... Every single frame in this movie is like a screensaver. I actually have a frame in this movie directly taken from the Blu-ray as a screensaver on my computer. And you would swear this was a fucking customised, amazing image that was professionally taken just for this moment. Like It's hard to believe this is a frame of an actual movie. It's extremely slow burn. It's about, I think it's about 90 minutes, 90 odd minutes. But it is very slow. And that, again that threw a lot of people off. They weren't happy with it. They were probably expecting another. Sort of fast paced. Dreamy nice vibe the drive has. Whereas this was just a really. Ugly run down. But visually amazing. Slow burn. Very much a character study as well. So it's. It was a very different direction from drive. And I think that threw a lot of people off. But for me this is just one of the finest films of that decade. Like I said, for, as a visual tree and in terms of just the, the grittiness and the stuff that's going on in it, it just has you completely zoned in. You're always wondering what's going to happen next because the explosions of violence and everything are just so jarring and surprising and really raw and vicious. So, Only God Forgives from 2013 at number 67. And number 66 is what I would consider to be one of the best horror films of the decade. 
uh, and one of the most underrated fucking horror films of the decade as well. No one talks about this movie, and they really should. Um, and that is The Borderlands from 2013. Now, by Elliot Goldner, by the way. Um, I think there was another film called Borderlands. And it's something to do with, like, the Mexican border and some sort of demonic culty shite. That has nothing to do with it. Um, or to do with this one. This is about two investigators in the Vatican who disprove paranormal activity. Their whole thing is that when you see all these amazing videos coming out of uh, weird spiritual noises and stuff flying off the walls in churches and all this kind of shit, they go out and go, okay, you're doing this by having speakers under the desk, you're having strings pull this off. So they're, they're known for uh, debunking all the bullshit paranormal activity stuff. And they basically have to go out to the middle of the West Country out in England to find out if this weird event that was recorded on video at a church was real or not. And there's a slow descent into madness throughout this movie, and that's all I'm going to say. But I saw this at Horathon. This was one that was I reluctantly went to. Because I think the movie I wanted to see was either on before or after it. And someone just said, here, have a spare ticket to this if you want. I said, alright, fuck it, I'll go to it. Ended up almost being the highlight of the festival. Actually, could have been the best film I saw that year. Um, and I was sitting close to the screen too. That's where the speakers are really strong. So every noise in this movie just shot up my legs. But there's so much subtlety in this movie. It's, it's actually, here's the, here's the kicker. It's a found footage film. For a lot of people, that would turn them off. Normally it would turn me off. But this film is done so legitimately and so brilliantly. And there's actually reasons for the fucking film footage to be there. It's not just a bunch of teenagers sneaking into an abandoned building. And happen to awaken some fucking spirit. This is actual owl lads. Like one of the lads looks like he's in his late 40s or something. Maybe early 50s. The other guy's in his like mid to late 30s. And you're just you're following these lads. It's so much more believable. It's not annoying teenagers. So immediately you're already invested in what they're talking about. And the amount of subtlety in this movie. Because a lot of found footage stuff is... I mean they'd be walking through a tunnel somewhere. And something will happen. And you'll have the guy at the camera. Like he's got He's too cinematically minded in these movies. The way he films everything. Like there's no urgency or panic. There's times in this because they're wearing head cams. It makes it a lot more believable. But they could be walking around. And you'll see something that they haven't seen. And instead of them reacting to it and trying to make it scary, you're sitting there going, oh, fuck, I just saw that. They didn't see that. And it immediately ramps the tension up. And it's so fucking well done. It goes places. It's The sound design is so nerve-wracking. This is one of the best horror films of the decade, for sure. And the only place to get a Blu-ray of it is Germany, I think. And I remember getting it for about 2 99 So... If you can get your hands on a copy of this, do it because this is one of the best of decades. So that's number six, The Borderlands. Or I fucking should say 66. I don't know why I said number six there. Um, but number 65 is an amazing film. Like this, this is one of those films that probably took me about a week to process. Maybe longer before I really decided that it was a masterpiece. And it's from a director who's only done three movies although he's, he did a short film last year which was really cool called The Fall uh, which I think he did directly for BBC short screen or iPlayer one of these fucking things but it was really unusual really strange it's like a music video almost it was really intense and bizarre Um, and this is a movie he did called Under the Skin 
This one is very tough sale. I know a lot of people who started this movie and they couldn't get through it. Mostly because some parts of it are so fucking disturbing. But whereas other parts are just because it's so slow and arty and creepy. But it follows Scarlett Johansson as a strange alien seductress who lands in Glasgow of all places. Like most of these movies you'd expect to take place in like fucking New York or LA or big city areas but this takes place in the art end of Glasgow and she's essentially driving around looking to seduce men bring her back to her house and then have them consumed in a certain way I don't want to say much more than that already kind of probably gives away a bit too much but you I mean you figure this out very early on um but it's seriously strange like the opening moments of the movie are these weird it looks like an eye being formed with fucking her learning how to use the English accent or Scottish accent oh no she has an English accent in this learning how to speak English how to have a human accent and she just acts so bizarrely and out of character and all the interactions in this are real what they did was they gave her a van and because she obviously she had an English accent people just thought like oh she must look like Scarlett Johansson because she's normally a blonde. She's darker than this. But she's driving around with GoPros inside this big white van. And she's talking to real lads on the streets of Scotland. Just flirting with them and asking for directions and all sorts. And every interaction you watch in this movie is real. Except obviously the ones that are um, more to drive the story. But everything else. It's like this whole movie was done in secret. And there's just such a fucking unusual unnerving atmosphere. There's a scene in it. This is usually a scene where people tap out. Um, that involves a beach. And you'll know it when it happens. And I highly recommend people watch this. It was on Netflix at one stage. I don't know if it still is. But I remember just watching it and thinking. This is beyond fucked up. It's just so. It, it, it's so alien. <laughs> That's the best way I can put it. It's, it's the kind of thing you're looking at and going. This is exactly how an alien would react to this kind of situation. Um. But yeah, it's a strange one. Visually fucking amazing. The stuff in this movie, I don't know how they achieved. Um, and the music by Mika Levy, I think is how you say the name. Or Michael Levy, I'm not too sure. Uh, really, Some of it's really nice. Some of it's just, it's like these unusual alien tones. It's almost like communication or like signals or some shit like that. But where this movie goes is just so strange, dark, bizarre. And... Uh, yeah, there's really nothing like it out there. Highly recommend this one. Oh, that's Under the Skin at number 65. Uh, number 64 is one of the most brutal and raw prison movies I've seen nearly ever. And I find um, I find if it's set in England, like so I've seen Scum, obviously, and that just feels so much more realistic than when you're looking at movies that are set in like San Quentin or something like that. Like it maybe it's a cultural thing because this is close to Ireland but um, this is one by David McKenzie and it's called Start Up and I think this might be the first David McKenzie movie I saw but it's it immediately put him on my map I saw this movie and thought okay this guy's one to watch Jack O'Connell's in it who's just always fucking amazing he always puts in 110% and I'm glad to see him doing so well these days Um, and you have Ben Mendelsohn again with Rupert Friend in there too and Peter Ferdinando makes a small appearance. He's also going to be mentioned again shortly. 
but this one it follows Jack O'Connor who's just turned 18 he was in a bar still but he's or he's how old is he he's 19 Either way, he's just come from a Borstal and he's now moving into the big big league. So he's going to a proper prison for some violent crimes that he's done. And he's just a general... What is Asbold the word? I can't remember the word. I know it's an English term, but... He's effectively going to prison for the first time. But the person who's really big up in that prison is Ben Mendelsohn, who's his dad in the movie. So it's a very strange father and son bonding film in a prison. Uh, not like that but Rupert Friend plays a sort of guidance counsellor who's trying to help him out and help other people out so he's got Rupert Friend on his side of trying to push him away from a life of crime whereas his dad in a sense is pulling him into it and it's just I mean this movie it's it's like a fly in the wall situation like it's so gritty so realistic and there's a lot there's parts of it that reminded me of Bronson like obviously Bronson's very stylish and over the top at times but just the behaviour of certain characters and this is very like Bronson it's so like uh, I don't even know how to describe it without repeating myself nearly, but it, it's like genuinely a documentary taking place inside a prison it's fucking amazing how they did it um, and I think this has a lot in common atmosphere wise to an Irish film which is actually directed by an ex-teacher of mine uh, Frank Berry there's a movie he made called Michael Inside which I thought was really good and well worth watching as well actually but this this had a lot of tonal similarities and the looks of the movie and some of the sort of prison politics and because like I said this is very close to home in terms of only just being across the pond or not even that far across the pond just fucking half hour ferry away it just made everything feel more relatable not that i'm a criminal obviously but just in terms of realism i mean that's the way it is with almost any kind of british movie or scottish movie or anything like that it's it always feels really realistic and natural to me i don't know how americans feel about these kind of movies do they find it realistic or they find it over the top or or what but it's it's very true to life these movies um and i think what was interesting about this movie was that when it came out here I am going on about fucking certs again. But it had a 16s rating in the cinema over here. Now that can sometimes mean an 18s rating. Like a lot of the time it is. Um, I think The Gentleman was actually 16s here and an 18s in England. But I think this movie got a 16s. Not because they thought okay it's not quite an 18s movie. I think they wanted people to get a look at where some fucking asshole 16 year olds are probably going to end up. And they thought by making it 16s, they go, oh yeah, we'll go see this. And then they watch it and get a fucking life lesson. That's that's my theory on this movie. Um, and it's a good fucking, it's a good lesson to learn because this movie shows you that crime does not fucking pay. I mean, lots of movies do, but this this one in a, in a more local setting for me, I suppose. Um, so yeah, 65, I think. Or 64. Yeah, 64, I'm pretty sure it's that. Um, start up from 20 what year was it 2015 I think ah or no it might have been 13 fuck it around that time 2013 Um, at 63 this is one that was actually quite similar maybe not necessarily to- well kind of tonally although this is a lot darker and more serious at times Um, but this is Ron Howard's Rush from 2013 Uh very similar in ways to four or not four feet very le mans 66 
Um, I suppose that I was as gripped because the driving scenes in this movie are jaw-droppingly well done. Um, and Ford or and oh god, I'm trying to train myself not to call a Ford v Ferrari. Um, the Man sixty six had amazing driving scenes as well, but this this was a strange one because like the Man the Man sixty six, I don't know anything about cars. I don't care about cars. Did well, I know this isn't uh, quite the same because the the Le Mans 66 is actual cars whereas this is Formula 1 so these are a different type of cars but racing let's say I don't know anything about that shit but this is based on two real guys James Hunt and Nicky Lauda who in the mid 70s had a very friendly rivalry I think it started off as as enemies and grew to an understanding of friendship and the movie I suppose kind of it prolongs that I suppose for the sake of drama but this movie is incredible. It's Chris Hemsworth plays James Hunt and Daniel Brühl ta- plays Nicky Lauda. And you've Olivia Wilde making an appearance in there as well. As well as Stephen Mangan and Christopher McKay. And it's just... Uh, I remember just thinking, like, would I be interested in it? I thought it was just going to be a very nuts and bolts, basic biography movie, but I was totally gripped. I didn't know anything about the story and it's fascinating it's one of those real you're just almost inspired by the end of it it's such an amazing fucking story and again i know nothing about racing i don't care about racing this kept me interested the whole way and it's quite adult as well i didn't even realize it was going to be like that because obviously the man 66 is quite accessible and i suppose this is to a degree but there's some kind of dark moments in this and a lot of language in it too i didn't expect um so yeah this one is just jaw-droppingly good ron howard can't even think what he's done in the last few years. I know he did something there recently. Um, it's just not sticking out for whatever reason. But I don't think he's done it in as memorable as this. That's for sure because this is the only thing that really stuck out when I think about Ron Howard in recent years. Oh no, he did Solo, didn't he? Yeah, this is uh, infinitely better than Solo. So yeah, a sixty-three rush, highly recommended. I'm not sure why I keep saying highly recommended. I mean, obviously all of these films are recommended if I'm fucking talking about them. And I probably said that already. Oh, my... It's actually... It's surprisingly tiring <laughs> to do this. As much as I enjoy it. But, like, there's times that by the end of it, I'm like, my head is on fire. But, um... Anyway, at 62 is another South Korean one from Yun Sang-ho. And it's from 2016. And this was another one. I think it was the... Was it opening movie at Horathon? I can't remember if it was opening or it was just on the first night. It might have actually been an opening movie. But it blew me away and this was Train to Busan. This movie is it's basically a perfect movie <laughs> in a way. Just in terms of the structure and the characters and how invested you are. Like this, It's rare a movie, especially this high concept, can have you this gripped. And it follows... A group of several different groups of people who are getting a train from Seoul to Busan. I think I'm saying that right anyway. And while this is happening, an extreme zombie outbreak occurs. And you're following a non-stop train that's flying between these two stations. And all the carnage in between. And all the people who are becoming infected on the train. And how these passengers have to deal with it and separate themselves and take out the zombies and all these different really clever smart ideas as constantly building intention and building 
like these characters they'll get a second arrest once they get overcome one obstacle it's like okay now what the fuck are we going to do about this next thing and they have to really think on their feet and be smart and you've just got really great characters you care about everyone in this movie they, they, they really briefly quickly set up all these different like what these people's lives are like and I can't remember a lot of the names to be honest because there's so many of them but there's one that sticks out and uh, and it's Dong Suk Ma I think that's how you say it or uh, if you mix up the letters because uh, like I said these names are strange but it says Ma Dong Suk so you can take that whatever way you want uh, but this guy man he just he steals this whole fucking movie he's just a big unit of a lad and I've seen him in a few things now. Someone another film that was at Horaton called The Gangster, The Cop, The Devil. And he steals every scene in that as well. He's just a stocky, tough guy who could kick the fuck out of anyone on earth. And he just takes no shit in this movie. And he's he's, he's also a source of comic relief, which is surprising for such a tough guy. But the way, the way this movie is handled is just expert. It, uh, it also got a prequel... A really short animated prequel called Seoul Station, I think it was called. And now there's a sequel on the way called Peninsula. And I think, I mean, it's all the same people involved, so I'm totally on board. Uh, although I do think, like, I mean, the gimmick, for lack of a better word, in this movie is that they're stuck on a train. I hope that Peninsula isn't just another run-of-the-mill zombie movie that happens to be set in Korea. I mean, I'm still going to watch it. It's still probably be deadly, but I just hope... It has a little bit more to it because this had that angle which made it different and made it exciting and like you don't know what's going to happen. And I mean, they've, I mean, they've done stuff like this before. There was some movie which apparently was actually all right. I remember seeing a bit of it. It wasn't too bad, but it, I think it was called Flight of the Dead. Not a good title, not a good selling point, but it's about a a big flight where I think it's up in first class. Everyone turns into zombies and then the whole thing gets taken over. And it, an interesting idea. Um, but this one is just jaw-droppingly good and it shows on channel 4 quite a lot and there is blu-rays available it's one i'd recommend picking up it might could be on netflix i'm not 100 on that but track it down if you can because this is just fucking amazing um so that's number 62 train to busan at number 61 is probably one of the most unnerving horror films i've watched in the last decade um I will be honest, this is, if I was actually really going out of my way to order these movies, this would be near the 100 mark. Which, again, is not a bad thing, because this is a 100 movie out of thousands that I thought were fucking amazing. But, I mean, most of the stuff on this list would probably be better than if I was ranking them that way. Because it does have flaws in its final act, but for the atmosphere and the cinematography and the music and just the general tone of this movie in the first hour and 20 minutes or so, it totally makes up for it because this movie is so unnerving. Uh, oh, I should probably say the name of the fucking thing. It's from 2014, directed by David Robert Mitchell, who also did Under the Silver Lake. And this movie is called It Follows. And again, quite high concept and a really obvious play on uh, sexually transmitted diseases. But it, the idea of it is there's this force of sorts that's following you it's always coming after you and it'll never go away and it only comes after you when you have sex so if, if someone has sex with you and passes it to you then this thing is coming after you and if it catches you it is going to kill you the only way to get rid of it is to have sex again and pass it on to someone else but if the thing catches that person and kills them 
it comes back for you. So you have to keep doing it over and over and repeating the cycle and getting it as far away from possible. And I think it's just one of the most unique concepts. I mean, it's obvious what it's alluding to and what it means, but just the the slow, still, tense cinematography of this movie, the music, the just the build up. There's parts where you're you're not even really sure. You're just seeing three people sitting down talking. And in the background, someone's really slowly walking towards them. Like that's that's how this person comes after you. It can disguise itself as someone you know, or someone who's dead, or someone you've always wanted to meet. Like it, it finds ways to get in your head, but it really slowly walks towards you, and it's just such a creepy idea. The visuals make it makes for amazing visuals. Because like I said, there's times where there's there's actually one amazing scene where the camera's just on a tripod, slowly turning around, and there's someone in the distance gradually getting closer and you're not sure whether or not this is just someone going for a walk or this is someone coming to get the main character it's fantastic how they did it and uh, the lead character is played by Micah Monroe who I always mix her up with Samara Weaving I think they're very similar um I think she might be Australian as well that could be why I may be wrong but she's fucking tremendous in this and it's just everything about this movie I think is fantastic up until the final act which I still think is good but it kind of I feel like it doesn't feel too justified but that's it's a mild criticism because everything else about this movie I absolutely love so it follows at number 61 definitely check it out at 60 is one that I only fucking got to see maybe a year ago two years ago and as soon as I saw it I thought okay this movie is fantastic from the op- from the opening vignette because this whole movie is i think six short stories and the whole idea of it is it explores human behavior when they're in extreme situations of distress <laughs> so it's six different characters who are going through a certain situation and i don't want to spoil a lot of them or any of them to be honest um but it's a stranger because like the first one is just crazy the second one is a much more slow burn and mysterious the third one is like a full-blown comedy the fourth one is like a really just dour gritty depressing drama the fifth one is kind of somewhere in between uh thriller and hard drama and then the last one is just a bananas mixture of all of that stuff and it's amazing how they pulled this off every one of these stories i thought was fantastic that's rare when you do it i mean it's it's hard to call it an anthology movie because it's not exactly several different directors getting together and doing something this is actually just one guy his name is uh demian sizifron oh fucking hell i really have no idea how to pronounce these names s-z-i-f-r-o-n so that could be just like sifron that actually makes more sense probably doesn't pronounce every fucking letter so uh demian sifron that's how I'm going to say it. Uh, did I say the name of this movie? Maybe I didn't. At number 60, 2014 Wild Tales. That's what it's called. Actually, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't recall actually saying the name Wild Tales. Um, it's an Argentinian movie and there's a lot of familiar faces who I'd have seen in other Argentinian stuff, but I, I don't know any of them by name, um, which doesn't help much. But you don't really need to know them. You just know that it's fucking wildly entertaining, pun partially intended and totally unpredictable every short film you watch you're thinking because from the first one it's going to make you go okay i know 
or I, you don't know where it's going and you think okay this is so surprising and so shocking I'm going to try to figure out the rest of these short films you're, you're subconsciously going to do that but even then you're not going to know because they just go in crazy directions and it's just totally irreverent over the top crazy it's fun it's shocking it's dark It it's totally unique as well I can't recommend this one enough uh, and no one's talking about it no one knows this movie really I suppose not a lot of people know Argentinian movies I guess but this is one that needs to be seen and it's always on film 4 as well I've seen it on there at least 2 or 3 times now and I think next time it's on if you're checking your listings if you see it on record it it might again it's it's hard to find out what's on any streaming service I'm actually I'm going to do I'm not necessarily going to call this a plug because it's not really but this is just a website that I use sometimes and it's not great sometimes it actually just the links are completely fucked up on it but it's called justwatch.com and you can look at you can type in any movie there and it'll tell you if it's available on the likes of netflix prime apple google play sky disney now tv shudder all these things so i think if you're interested in any of these movies type them in there and see that they pop up on the likes of netflix or prime or whatever you might be more prone to using um just to save you going in and out of all the different apps to try find them and if they're not available there i recommend buying all of them all these are are worth a purchase in my eyes so at number 60 wild tales fantastic right we're into the fucking bottom 10 of the first half of this this is gonna be so long um i've definitely surpassed my longest episode now this is for sure the longest um and it's exactly why i didn't do this in, as a a one part because i don't want to sit here talking for five straight hours but the second part of this will come soon and hopefully be a bit quicker um but we're we're in the the final stretch of it now and uh well actually no i suppose it's this is going to be the last nine number 60 there would have been the last part of the last 10 so at 59 is another one by the russo brothers this is from 2014 and this is the one that really changed the game for the marvel movies in my eyes and that is captain america the winter soldier um like i said i've, I've enjoyed all these movies leading up to now i've think they're all great i love the first avengers movies obviously iron man is fantastic and i set it all off um but i think they, they, they were lacking in a lot of ways and this one just totally changed it all up I, i'm trying to remember i can't remember where avengers assemble or what's it called age of ultron was before this or not but i just remember that this one in terms of the action scenes the choreography the fight scenes and all they're really well choreographed you know exactly what's going on they're really vicious too way more vicious than you'd expect from these marvel movies it isn't just people being punched 500 feet across the the planet through 20 buildings like the way the dc stuff was this is really combat heavy choreographed technical kind of stuff and it pretty much feels like an old like 70s espionage movie but in a modern setting and obviously i think a lot of that comes down to the fact that robert redford's in it um but yeah, it, it's, it introduces certain characters that you obviously have seen in the likes of Endgame and Infinity War. I think these are hard movies to talk about uh, without ruining certain things. Now, I know they're kind of their own, they're, they're own standalone things. Like This is more just about Steve Rogers trying to fix the world when shields come under attack. And it's, it's there's a lot of intrigue and there's a lot of mystery in this. And again, I don't want to say too much. I don't want to spoil anything. Um but it does it does have a very 70s espionage feel 
you have the likes of obviously Chris Evans is going to be in it, Sam Jackson, Scarlett Johansson, but this is the one that introduced Anthony Mackie and Sebastian Stan, Frank Grillo, Kobe Smolders, and all these great people in it. And like I said, it's a tough one to talk about because I don't want to. In the off chance that people haven't seen all the Avengers movies, which I fucking recommend you do, and I, I don't like these pompous arseholes who say that they're they're like unworthy movies. Now I love Scorsese. But I also love Marvel movies. And I think they're just as much cinema as his movies are. I get the point he's trying to make. But these are. They, they have their place. And they're all thoroughly entertaining. So Captain America the Winter Soldier is probably the best of the Marvel movies. Or at least my favourite. And then you have the likes of Endgame after that. And Infinity Wars. It's a, it's a hard one to jumble. I think the, the best ones are the toughest. The bottom ones are easy enough to do. And the middle ones is where it's. It's easy enough to just go, oh yeah, Ant-Man's a bit better than that one and whatever else. But yeah, I'm done rambling about this. At number 59, Captain America, The Winter Soldier. At number 58, we return to the world of Wes Anderson in easily one of his most Wes Anderson movies ever made. I mean, this chap, I know a lot of people were saying about his new movie, The French Dispatch, at least by the look of it, that it's almost like a parody of his movies because of how Wes Anderson it is but that's the thing he's developed his own style it works and it's excellent and it's something that I you can see people trying to do but they don't have the charm people just look at him and think oh he's just quirky and does weird things for the sake of weird but if you look at it they're all really well written and it's amazingly choreographed like it's all his movies feel like puppets that he staged in his bedroom in some doll's house like that's how the movie looks it's just fantastic how he does it but this one is from 2014 and it is the grand budapest hotel uh, there's a lot going on in this movie but it's it takes place over i think two different time periods i think jude law is is he writing a story <laughs> i'm trying to remember now because i've actually not seen this since the cinema i think i might have bought the blu-ray of this I'm just investigating here. Maybe I didn't. I thought I did. Well, it could be there somewhere. I, I have them. They're all jumbled up at the moment. I should really get back to fucking organising those things. I had them alphabetical at one stage and it was fantastic. But I actually don't have enough room for all my Blu-rays now. Um, Don't worry, I'm not getting rid of them or downsizing it. I'm just going to fucking <laughs> get another shelf. But this one, I think Jude Law is writing a story and he meets F. Murray Abraham. And this is in somewhat the 70s kind of time. And he basically says, well, I have a story about this old hotel. This is back when it was thriving. And here's my story of when I was a concierge in the hotel. Uh, Oh, no, uh, when I was a lobby boy. And the concierge is his boss. And the adventure that they go on, which involves paintings and items being left in a will and murder and mystery and all kinds of shit. Um, (laughs) I'm trying to be somewhat vague here with this one because there's a lot going on and it's not quite as simple to explain as guy goes on revenge because his parents are killed or fucking island of dogs little boy goes to try to retrieve his dog so there's a a lot going on but there's a serious serious all-star cast as you'd expect with uh, Wes Anderson so you've got Ray Fiennes Tony Revolori F. Murray Abraham, Adrian Brody, Willem Dafoe, Jeff Goldblum, Harvey Keitel, Jude Law, Bill Murray, Ed Norton, Sir Ronan, Jason Schwartzman, Leah Sado, Tilda Swindon, Tom Wilkinson, Owen Wilson, and Bob Balaban. 
and they have Fisher Stevens as well and oh, there's so many fucking people in these movies it's, it's amazing how he actually gets these cast together and makes them all work uh, I don't know if I mentioned Bill Murray and Ed Norton maybe I did but they're all in it anyway and it's just the, the whole look of the movie like I said it's like puppets being set up and obviously he's made movies with puppets so it's it has the same bizarre cinematography there's lots of miniatures it's so rich and textured in terms of the detail and what he puts in there like every envelope you fucking see on a table or like a pen or all the details around the set design are meticulously put together and it just works so well and it's actually it's shot in two different aspect ratios as well um i can't remember which ones exactly but let's just say widescreen and four by three for the sake of simplicity um just a fucking fantastic film it's a fun exciting romp another one of those films where you're like where the fuck is this possibly going to go and while i haven't seen it i want to see the new paddington movies because i heard they're fucking fantastic but there's a whole plot in the second paddington movie that looks like it was directly lifted from this movie or like it takes place in the same world and i think they might have even got inspiration from it but this one is just it's so bizarre and that's why i love wes anderson's films as well because there's times where they're kind of strange and violent and crazy things happen but it still keeps the tone and atmosphere of his movies and this one has it in spades so at number 58 the grand budapest hotel at number 57 probably one of the most creative directors on the planet every movie he's done so far has just made me totally shocked and surprised every time with just how original and unique his movies are um this is i don't know has he done anything else now since I can't even think but I know this one stood out to me as an incredible film and this is another appearance maybe I think maybe now Scarlett Johansson could have appeared in every film (laughs) or not every film but the most films from this list so far and possibly beyond I have to try and remember now Hmm. but anyway um, this is Spike Jonze's 2013 movie Her and it's got a very I think I've used this phrase earlier on retro futuristic but it has that kind of look where everything feels like a hipster's instagram filtered world and everything has an old vinyl acoustic-y feel to it and you're following the fantastic joaquin phoenix as a guy who writes uh greeting cards and stuff like that for what's the word valentine's day so he writes the cards and he writes the little poems and things like that but he's extremely lonely as a guy and with the advancements in technology he's able to have a completely lifelike virtual girlfriend through an app essentially so it's like his girlfriend is an iphone and that's voiced by Scarlett Johansson and it's hard to get into the the intricacies of what way this plot works out but it's a very lonely emotional movie with amazing performances from everyone uh his real life wife Rooney Mara is in it as well and Amy Adams Olivia Wilde Chris Pratt this is before I really knew who he was at this stage I was watching Parks and Recreation and I was like oh there's himself but I didn't really know it um and I think there's some cameos from the likes of Bill Hader and Kristen Wiig Brian Cox and a lot of people but this is a really just fucking it's another one of those movies not obviously not like blue valentine's that's a different level but it's one of those ones where you're kind of the high emotions of it feel good even though they're they're sad emotions it's just fantastic how they fuck he manages to do this and he's done it before if you look at uh being john markovich and even adaptation you have those 
kind of moments and scenes in it where you're you're so invested in these characters you kind of want certain things to work out and it's just really fucking interesting movie um and i'd highly recommend it and it's actually become a bit of a meme now because there's a point where um walking phoenix is lying on a bed and i, I can't remember if he's like listening to old recordings of his ex-girlfriend who really married plays or or what he's doing it but i i know that he's he's looking sad and forlorn and towards the camera but someone <laughs> turned the footage upside down and if you look at the wrinkles in his forehead it looks like a small face and it's just become a meme now to watch him make weird faces with his forehead wrinkles but yeah this movie absolutely fucking fantastic um i remember when head was still a shop in Liffey valley i got the blu-ray of this for four quid and i couldn't believe it because everywhere i had it for like 15 quid minimum so you can probably get this cheap enough now and it's well worth the investment it could also be on netflix but as i said try just watch and see what the story is but yeah 57 her at 56 another appearance from the legendary martin scorsese and it's not going to be the last one i can tell you that much um in his 2013 just off the wall comedy which is unusual for him he's he has done some comedy stuff but this one is a straight crazy comedy and that is the wolf of wall street the movie that finally oh no it isn't the movie that people thought was going to be the one to get dicaprio the oscar but it was actually a later film which i'll mention soon um i was just as surprised everyone else that he didn't win for this movie because he just puts in two thousand percent to this performance to the point where he again injured himself he did the same on django and chain where he cut his hand on a glass in this he dislocated his back for the sake of hilarious physical comedy um it's a real story too it's based on a guy named jordan belfort who or belfort who i can't really call him a con artist he's just more a manipulative stockbroker in wall street and he just knows how to fuck people over with corporate banking and gets involved with the mob and just has rakes and rakes of money and he pulls us all together with the help of his friend jonah hill his character is his name i can't remember again another movie i haven't watched since it came out in the cinema uh, but I actually I went out of my way to buy the Blu-ray of this when it came out because it was a really nice there's a packet that comes with it obviously it's him standing there in the middle of a crazy party because the, the parties that Jordan Belfort had in this movie is just this movie is a total it's a movie of complete excess it's just nothing but sex and drugs and party and this movie has crazy amounts of sex and drugs like almost farcical but it's all based on real stuff um but there was a really nice packet that had this really lovely yellow slip cover on it with a sort of an American flag made out of dollar signs and drugs and all kinds of shit. It's just really cool. Um, but yeah, you're you're basically following this guy's start as someone who's somewhat innocent isn't the right word, but he's uh, honest and gradually becomes one of the most dishonest, scaldy public speaking. Well, he's one of these like public speakers, motivators, and he just knows how to sell people and manipulate and it's just one of the greediest movies you'll ever watch but it's just it's so fun it's three full hours of total bonkers excess and it's just fucking so much fun and DiCaprio should have got an Oscar for it and there's obviously performances like I said from Johnny Hill Kyle Chandler Margot Robbie 
it was actually the, I think it was the first thing I've ever saw Margot Robbie in and she obviously made a huge impression on everyone especially me um, we have appearances like I said from Rob Reiner Matthew McConaughey and John Bernthal who is just one of the finest fucking actors working today and doesn't get nearly enough respect that he should um, yeah this is just craziness absolute craziness money laundering madness <laughs> I, uh, even with all the stuff I've actually revealed about it there I don't even think I've done half the justice it deserves because this movie is bananas highly highly recommend it that's Wolf of Wall Street at number I think 56 I said there so we're getting there we're in the last one two three four five yep the last five oh god Thank, thanks for staying with me this far by the way because fucking hell up next is one of the best directors of all time directing two of the best actors of all time one of them unfortunately a late actor and to me one of the best just one of the best i've ever seen in my life and this is one of his best performances too and the other actor is his best performance and it's what he should have won the oscar for instead of this year winning for joker which i still agree with and this is paul thomas anderson's 2012 movie the master i think this film is just mind-blowingly good a lot of people for some reason compare it to the to there be blood i think it's because they're roughly not even really near the same time period but they're kind of roughly uh, i don't know no i wouldn't even say they're nearly the same time period i think it's just that they, they they've similar themes and behaviors of certain characters but this follows freddie quell who's a war veteran who has the most grim alcoholism that you could ever watch like he practically drinks bleaches and stuff like that for the sake of alcohol um and he obviously suffers from serious ptsd and he, he's very much lost after world war Two, and ends up as a stowaway on a boat which is owned by uh lancaster dodd played by the immaculate philip seymour hoffman in like i said probably maybe his best performance he's incredible in this but he has his own special religion that he's the leader of and he starts to indoctrinate Joaquin Phoenix's character and it's a very clear piss take well piss take makes it sound more farcical but it's it's a an obvious reference to Scientology and so much of this movie clearly is a take on Scientology and as far as I know he showed this to tom cruise because he's good friends with tom cruise obviously from working on magnolia and i think they had a bit of a fight over but they they made amends by the end of it um and i would love to have have been a fly on the wall for that argument just to see what the fuck tom cruise is gonna say because as much as i love the guy i wish he was just away from scientology and all that fucking nonsense but this is just an incredible display of acting like there's one scene in this is regarded as probably the best scene put to film by a lot of people and known as the processing scene and it is just one of the most captivating things i've ever seen like it's it's hard to even believe that these are two actors like you're not watching two real people here joaquin phoenix was robbed at this fucking oscars for this movie i think he behaved poorly when he lost he looked really pissed off and didn't really didn't seem too humble um but i'm also not surprised because he is just incredible in this movie he was robbed and phil seymour hoffman one of the greatest losses in acting history there's also there's lots of people in this who are good as well so amy adams remy malik in a part that i only upon rewatching it i realized was in it i didn't even know he was in it before 
uh, Jesse Plemons, who was fantastic and a perfect choice to play young uh, Philip Seymour, well, not young Philip Seymour, and his son, I should say, because um, they look very similar. Um, and I'd first seen him in Breaking Bad, but he was fantastic in this. And uh, you also have Laura Dern. So two Oscar winners this year both appeared in this movie. It's absolutely mind blowing. And I know there's people out there who don't like Derby Blood who probably won't like this as well. And I know some people who didn't like this and I'm surprised, but this movie is just is his acting masterclass of the highest quality and cinematography. It's shot on seventy mil and it looks absolutely stellar. Every scene in this movie is shot in a fantastic way. And there's so much deleted footage too. Most of the trailers are actually compiled from footage that wasn't even in the movie. Which at first annoyed me. But when I got to see it all on the Blu-ray it was fucking tremendous. So yeah. The Master at number 55. Outstanding movie. At number 54 is... Now I've used the phrase raw and gritty and vicious and mean. And all these words to describe a lot of crime movies. But this one may take the cake. This is directed by a guy named Gerard Johnson, or Gerard Johnson, who directed a fucking really ugly movie, really great movie, I should say, as well, a few years ago called Tony. Uh, when I say a few years ago, it was, what, 2009, I think it was, a few years before this, uh, which starred Peter Ferdinando, who's also the lead in this and who makes an appearance in Startup. And, of course, he's, he's acting alongside one of the best British actors of all time, Stephen Graham. And Neil Maskell makes an appearance in this too. And Mayanna Burning. Who were both together in another movie that's going to be uh, on my list here. Uh, half a hint there. Not just by mentioning the actors but what I what I said. Um, but this movie is just so vicious. Like I, I have, like I said I've used that phrase a few times. But I remember when I even saw the trailer for this. I thought wow this is going dark places. There's moments in this movie that actually might... <laughs> trigger some horrendous psychological uh, repression in people for for how real and horrible it is. Um, but the general plot of the movie is Peter Ferdinando and all his sort of cronies in the police force are corrupt is a, a strong word, but they're dirty. They will take money, they'll take drugs. They're on the scaldy side of things, but they have um they have an allegiance with the Turkish the Turks all these gangs and they're on good terms with them and things work out well for them but these new Albanian brothers move in and they start killing off all the gangs and causing lots of trouble and now they have to decide whether or not they're going to be proper cops and take these guys down with a task force set up by Stephen Graham or are they going to try to get into business with the Albanians and it's uh, that's about as much as I want to say about it but there's some seriously gruesomely horrible stuff in this movie uh, boundary pushing stuff one moment is like, like I'm amazed this actually got shown in the cinema I remember it was only me a friend of mine and another person in the cinema and this person this there was a woman ahead of us she did not look happy and I'm not surprised because it is seriously raw it's not one I recommend if you're in any way squeamish with brutal machete killings and horrendous sex trafficking because this movie pulls zero punches but it's also so stylish amazing with visuals and music and actually again another movie i forgot to fucking mention the title of at number 54 this is jared johnson's hyena 
and he's also like i said he did that movie tony and he has a movie on the way called muscle which i'm already sold on and uh a trailer came here for that too but i'm avoiding it but this movie rough fantastic just gripping raw amazing oh that's at number 55 or what did i say 54 hyena at 53 is probably one of the most divisive films on this whole list I mean, there's, there's been a couple, like I said, Under the Skin is a, a tough one for a lot of people. Uh, but this one, another very dark, gritty, raw, brutal, and seriously boundary-pushing. Like, the stuff in this movie that has had people sick and has triggered lots of walkouts, or caused lots of walkouts in movies. Um, and that's exactly what the director wants, because he loves controversy, he loves to upset people. And it didn't upset me because I love fucked up stuff. But this is from 2018 and it's Lars von Trier's The House That Jack Built. This was one of the best films I saw in 2018. And I was so lucky that I actually got to see the director's cut on a one and only screening in the cinema here just around Christmas time. Just the perfect time to see a movie like this. And it follows 12 years in the life of a psychotic serial killer played by Matt Dillon in what is easily the best role of his entire career and this chap has done some fucking fantastic stuff but this is top of the list he is mind blown here and he's uh, like seriously obsessive compulsive disorder kind of stuff going on with him to the point where at one point in the movie point at one point in the movie he is so obsessed about potentially leaving blood behind that he cleans up his crime scene about 20 times and he can't he can't stop himself from doing it to the point where it's actually going to put him in danger uh, of being caught because he needs to clean every little detail it's just it's, it's a very funny scene that's one thing you'll see you'll know about this movie as well as fucked up as it is because there's like i said there's parts of this movie that are people are going to turn this off i know people who will turn this movie off and i'm not being hyperbolic here as well there's just there's certain taboos in horror movies and just movies in general that people can't tolerate and this movie <laughs> does a serious fuck you in terms of that like this this goes places um but it's really funny like there's times in this this is like this is genuinely a dark comedy it's not that you're not supposed to laugh at it or there's maybe the odd joke in it a lot of this movie is really funny but it's also twisted and dark and it takes place over i think it's five or six incidents that's how the the chapters in this movie are separated so it's over 12 years with these different incidents and each one is a different kill or a, a series of killings that matt dillon has gone on and it's narrated by him and it's kind of has this it's like he's talking to a a guardian angel or something and it, who's played by bruno gans so he's he's talking back and forth with him and it's really interesting the conversations they have it's all about life death morality why he's doing this now there's stuff in this that people will find pretentious because there is no doubt pretentious shit in it but it all worked for me i was totally gripped by this and at one point it it shows you visions of hell and the river sticks and getting there and it's it's like typical airs from trade the way the movie's shot is mostly handheld digital feels very realistic and just grimy and real um but like antichrist which also has similar moments that are just shot really realistic and handheld 
on video cameras it has these really intricate amazing set pieces with visuals in them that are just jaw-dropping to look at again stuff that could nearly always be a a screensaver or something like that how he manages to blend those two things is amazing um but yeah this is not a a, an easy watch for a lot of people it was for me because it's at times absolutely hilarious like i said and uh, a good cast as well so you've matt dillon bruno gans uma thurman makes an appearance riley keogh and siobhan fallon hogan so it's nice to see an irish actress make an appearance in a well, a movie like this for a start but a big movie as far as i'm concerned this was this was a huge one because everyone was talking about it and it was massive controversy um because america said look we are not going to allow this movie <laughs> to to go through uh without cuts and they did they ended up cutting it but then certain cinemas in america actually got a hold of the uncut one and showed it and the police had to shut down the screenings in you know typical movie fascism that fucking goes on with these uh movie certification companies and whatever else but we were lucky to get it completely uncut and yeah absolutely fucking mind-blowing highly recommend the house that jack built not to everyone but to people who can handle this kind of stuff and if you know Lars von Trier, you know he's going to push your buttons if you've seen antichrist if you've seen nymphomaniac you know this chap does horrible shit in his movies and he likes to shock people and get them talking and this movie's no different but yeah <laughs> i'm eager to hear some feedback on this one but that's number 63 the house that jack built fantastic and number 62 wait no what am i saying 60 god i keep doing this fucking hell number 52 jesus this is gonna sound so confusing to people fucking <laughs> people fucking listening back to this um at 52 is i know I, i'm reluctant to say the director of this movie because as far as i know he didn't actually direct it which makes it quite interesting um and it was potentially written by or potentially directed by the writer now i saw this movie in the cinema and it blew my fucking mind it's very similar to another movie that's going to be on this list and if you if you know this movie then you know exactly what the other movie is but this is it says directed by pete travis but apparently it's actually directed by the writer alex garland who also wrote 28 days later and annihilation more recently and ex machina which is fantastic too but this is from 2012 and it is dread so this is another judge dread adaptation nothing like the fucking sylvester stallone one that came out years ago which was complete and utter arse although it is quite fun at the same time i think it'd be a good cinema movie with beers and shit but as its own kind of movie it's fairly shit um this one is way more true to the original graphics or comics that were out and it pretty much takes place in this gigantic dystopian wasteland where there's these big towers um where everyone lives so they're like they're imagine skyscrapers but they're apartment blocks and they're like these own little towns on the inside this one is controlled by a vicious drug dealer called mama who is played by lena hetty so this is around the time she was in game of thrones playing cersei as well so she was just in total bitch mode in terms of uh villainesses if that's the word villainesses fuck it you know what i'm talking about but in this one she's a real scumbag and certain people were murdered in this place and judge dread played perfectly by carl urban and his chin 
are sent to investigate it. Or himself and a new rookie played by Olivia Thrilby. And they obviously don't like the presence of cops. So what they do is they lock down the whole building. And Mama decides she will give... I'm trying to think what she offers them. She offers them like permanent residence plus drugs. Similar to the other film that's on this. Uh, and a lot of money. If they can take out these two judges as they're known as. Because that's basically what the cops is. The cops in this movie are judge, jury and executioner. All in one. So they don't have to go to court. Once you're arrested by them they decide then and there. If you're going to jail or what happens to you. It's usually jail or death. So you have these two cops. Judge Dredd and his rookie. Going head to head with an entire skyscraper worth of bad guys. In order to get to Mama at the top. And this movie is just incredible. I saw it in the cinema in 3D. And I have the Blu-ray which I've watched several times. It is just the visuals in this movie are something else entirely. And that's not, it's not just the visuals. The acting is all great. It's really well written. The action scenes are fucking fantastic. The two, the slow-mo guys. I can't even remember that fucking guy's name now. Gavin and, uh, Gavin Free I think his name is. And the other guy. They were actually behind some of the key special effects in this movie. Because the character of Mama sells this drug called uh, slow-mo. And when you take it, everything slows down. Even well, even though life's actually moving at a normal speed, you perceive everything as ultra slow. And this makes for some of the most awe-inspiring fucking action scenes that you'll ever fucking see, especially on the big screen. How they pulled it off so cheap and so simply is fantastic. And it's just, just ultra exciting fucking takes place over one night kind of action movie. I love movies that take place over one night, particularly if they're sci-fi movies. <laughs> That's just always going to be good. So this is just one of the most entertaining fucking movies I've seen in the last 10 years. I absolutely love it. I've seen it several times now and I'll be watching it several more times. And it always holds up too. So this is doing something seriously right. Plus it also has Donald Gleeson. So that's always a good good sign. Oh, so that's Dread at number 52. 52. I have to make very clear I'm saying that because <laughs> I don't know how I was saying 60 for the last one. Because... Oh. This is a long time. This is a long time recording. But. I am at the end. At number 51. Finally. Is. A movie that I actually went out of my way. To go to. A 10am screening. On a Sunday. To see this at the. What was at the time. The Jameson Film Festival. And. This is. Now this is a name I'm probably going to say wrong. But I'm going to say it how I've always said it. And that's Derek Cian France. Could be Keen France or Cian France. Which who the fuck knows. He can tell me himself. Um, This is his movie from 2012. Which he followed up. Blue Valentine with. And it is The Place Beyond the Pines. Starring. Oh Jesus. My voice went very morris there. This That's happened a few times on this podcast. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how I did that. I haven't actually drank any water in a long time. So it's probably a good thing I'm at the end of this. But this movie is an incredible fucking film. That takes place over three separate time periods. Or at least three different acts. So you have Ryan Gosling who plays. He works as like a carny kind of guy. He, he does motorbike stunts in like you know like these death dome kind of fucking things you see at uh, carnivals and shit like that and what he does is on the side rob banks with his partner played by ben mendelson yet again making an appearance here he could be the scarlett johansson of this list um 
just making several appearances. Although Ray Liotta is also briefly in this film too. But he ends up uh, coming back to town obviously after a year because the carnival's back. And he discovers that a woman that he slept with, played by his real life wife Eva Mendes, has had a child. And now he feels like I have to provide for this kid. So I'm going to rob some banks and I'm going to get some money. And all is going to go well. But she has moved on with Mahershala Ali, which was one of the first movies I've actually seen him in. I think I just knew him as the guy from House of Cards. And, oh no, I don't even think I started House of Cards at this stage. No, I didn't. I think I, I didn't recognise him in this until rewatching it. Um, but yeah, so she's moving on with her life and he isn't sure how to take this or what to do. And he's trying to obviously get his life together and prove to her that he is worth going away with, worth having a life with. All the while, Bradley Cooper is trying to track him down as a rookie cop who wants to make a name for himself and actually wants to get into the world of politics within the police world and that involves a whole lot of uh, corruption. I should bear in mind this all takes place in the the 90s or the mid 90s. Um, And then you have the future part of the movie which shows you Ryan Gosling's son and where he is in life and it's just it's just so brilliantly put together it's these three amazing chapters of I don't know I suppose just growing up and fatherhood and it's, it's like a weird coming of age movie as well as a heart-stoppingly tense thriller and a romance movie and it just blends all this stuff fucking perfectly and I'm pretty sure Mike Patton does the music for this too. I'll listen to anything Mike Patton's involved in. He he definitely has some songs in it. But being as vague as possible, it's all these stories come together in such an amazing way. It's just phenomenal performances from everyone. Totally unpredictable. And I just can't recommend this one enough. This is one of my favourite films of the whole decade. This nearly, very nearly made it into the top 10 as well. Um, which goes to show this top 10 is going to be really fucking good because... Like I said, I've just listed 50 movies that I think are absolutely amazing and could have potentially been in this top 10. But yeah, some of the people who are in this obviously are Ryan Gosling, Bradley Cooper, uh, Eva Mendes, Dane Dehan, Emery Cohen, Rose Byrne, Mahershala Ali, Bruce Greenwood, Ben Mendelsohn and Ray Liotta. So top tier fucking characters or actors. I suppose they're character actors in this movie. You just have a whole wealth of talent there. It's visually fantastic. It captures the 90s. Like, it legitimately looks like it's from the 90s. You, you wouldn't be surprised at all if you found that it was. And it's another one of those films. Obviously, a different kind of emotional feel to it than Blue Valentine. Because, obviously, this isn't quite as much a horrendous romance drama as that. But it, it, it does have you completely invested in these characters. And that's the strongest part of this. Because if you didn't give a fuck about these characters, you're not going to give a fuck about this movie. But the movie's so well written and so good that it will make you give a fuck about these characters. So, at number 51, The Place Beyond the Pines from 2012. <sighs> we made it. We made it and I'm, I dread to even look at how long this has been recording now. Uh, <laughs> not far off three hours. Um, I'll probably... Because there was a few times where I was trying to remember something. And like I've done this before. I, there may be a big chunk of silence where I'm like. Actually no I'm going to just cut that silence out. Because. I don't want to lose the natural. Ism. <laughs> What's the word? 
the natural feel of this podcast. I want it to always feel natural. Um, but I also don't want 10 to 15 seconds of dead air while I'm trying to figure out what the fuck I'm talking about. Um, I mean, it's much easier if I was talking to someone they can talk shite. That's why, like I said, I want to get some guests on. But I, I, I will whittle out some of the the wasted time, let's say, on this podcast. Uh, which hopefully to listeners doesn't mean the whole thing <laughs> because this is a long this is a big commitment and if you've made it this far holy shit thank you very much i'm I'm probably gonna end up thanking people at the end of every episode because i feel like uh as much as i enjoy doing this and as much as i know people enjoy hearing it it just feels like such a bird like it's long this is long but you stuck with me this far uh i hope you're looking forward to number 50 to number one this was uh severely ambitious and much longer than i thought it'd be to think fucking a week or so ago i thought i could do this in an hour my whole i could i'd literally just have to list the movies and not talk about them at all if i was going to do that in fucking one hour um thanks so much for listening tune in in a few days i suppose for when i ever get around to doing part two of this which is going to be hopefully a bit shorter (laughs) but there's just as many movies so we'll see what happens but For now, you're all cunts. Goodbye.